Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is proudly brought to you by Oz Runways, Australia's number one electronic flight bag. Now with support for New Zealand, Africa and Asia Pacific. Get a free one-month trial today at ozrunways.com and buy 50 Tales of Flight by Owens Up. Now available in ebook and in paperback at amazon.com and at owensup.com.au. Well, g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 120 of Australia's Aviation Show. Finally back. Gee, I tell you what, our production rate has been a little slow this year and I'm sorry about that, but uh, we've been uh, rather busy doing a lot of other things. But I tell you what, I'm pretty happy. How about you, Grant McCarran? Uh, yeah, I'm reasonably happy. Not quite as happy as you are, but uh, yeah, it's not been too bad for me. I'm smiling. I've been flying finally. Yay! Yay, indeed. I tell you what, how long have we been talking about me getting currency? Finally, I think it may happen. By spending a lot of currency as it turns out. Oh, that's always the way. Convert currency into currency. It's always the way, mate. But uh, yeah, you've been uh, talking about doing this for at least the last three years, and I believe it's been a uh, gap of about four years since you last logged any time at all in your book. Yes, well, don't, don't go telling anybody that. I've done a lot of riding around with other pilots, but uh, yeah, it was finally uh, cool to get up in the left seat down there at uh, Turidan Flying School, and uh, it looks like I'll have to buy myself an RAOs membership finally. Well, that's got to be a good thing to uh, have you in the folds of RAOs, get you back in the air. Get you to the point where you can go and take one of those uh, beautiful fly synthesis Texans up for a spin, uh, so to speak. But uh, yeah, so you're very happy because all that's been happening this week. I'm reasonably happy because, well, at, for me, it's been happening this month. Uh, earlier this month, I was at Mildura and I managed to get some time uh, flying and tethering a special shape. I was flying the, wait for it, nudie hot air balloon. Only you could say that and get away with it, Grant. (laughs) Well, it's the uh, Nudie special shape from the Nudie Juice Company. Uh, Back in 2004, that balloon was launched to the world and was uh, shown at the Mildura World Hot Air Balloon Championships where Nudie were a major sponsor. And uh, as a result, we wound up with... uh, we wound up with the nudie balloon that's been flying around Australia, went over Sydney Harbour recently, and I got my chance to pick it up from Sydney, take it all the way out to Mildura, and then uh, we had it stood up for the night glow with a whole lot of other balloons, and then I got to fly it the next morning. So I now officially have shape time. Yay! Shape time. Okay. Well, only in hot air balloons could you say that, Grant. <laughs> I'm a shapeshifter there. there <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, it's not just us gas bagging about flying this week. We've got two of our co-hosts with us this week. Welcoming to the show, Kathy Mexted and Michael Lee. Hi, guys. G'day, Hi, folks. Hi, Grant. Hi, Steve. Now, Kathy. Hi, now, uh, Kathy, um, you've been doing some flying too. A little birdie told me that. Well, actually, you told me that recently when I caught up with you for coffee. That's right. At Essendon okay. to see Alan Zapoff on his airmail. We sure airmail did. reenactment. Now, of course, uh, I went up flying in a uh, in a Texan. You went up flying in uh, something a little more sedate, or only slightly more sedate than an RAL's plane, I guess. <laughs> the good old Cub. <laughs> same, same old thing. <laughs> Yeah, just uh, it was a beautiful sunny day, and my husband keeps poking me, going, "Get out there and go flying." So Woo-hoo. I did. The kids are all, almost big enough to be able to manage without me. Well, you got to love it when uh, when your significant other says, "Go flying, go flying." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I was flying before we um, got together. Before I knew, I was a flying girl when he met me. So yeah. uh, twenty years on, you've got to maintain that somewhere, don't you? So yeah, it was good. We just um, went off to Kyneton and did some circuits and 
Only once came close to having a bit of marital <laughs> disharmony. <laughs> um, and he was wrong, so wasn't he, I, Kathy? Hey? And he was in the wrong, wasn't he? He would have been, yeah, usually <laughs> is. Uh, so then we recruited one of his mates and uh, he was much more sedate. <laughs> so um, so that was good too. So I went up again last week, just went and Yay. did some circuits and some stalls and he got me to fly home using rudder and trim. He said, put your hand up on the strut and um, cool. and take me home and I I've never done that before. Have you had to do that? No. No, well, I've never flown a cub. I can't put my hand out on the strut. <laughs> <laughs> the strut inside, mad thing. Oh, right, okay. So it just goes to show you how much I know about those aircraft. I'm curious, you talk about doing stalls in the cub. What I mean, doing stalls in the Texan is, um, well, you almost can't make the thing stall, it seems to me. What's what's a stall like in a cub? Well, it was very, very mushy, and it didn't actually drop the wing. It just sort of went mushy and... Um, and then we recovered. Yeah, nothing happens much. Pretty hard to stall the cub. So tell me, Micah, what's it like to stall a twin-engine turboprop? I can't say I've ever done that in the aircraft itself. In the simulator I have, it's not pretty. Bit of a wing drop? Bit of a wing drop, bit of a nose drop. Uh, probably a few choice words here. Actually, I shouldn't use choice words in a simulator with someone looking over my shoulder, but uh, <laughs> can't say I've stalled a... Uh, a turboprop before. Uh, Kathy, I do envy you. I've always wanted to fly a uh, Piper Cub. Well, you know, it's interesting because any time, uh, actually I said this to Kathy's husband once, he said, I've always wanted to drive a train. I said, you're right, I've always wanted to fly a Boeing 767. And he said, I'll teach you. <laughs> he said, it might take slightly longer than learning to drive a train. I think he'd be right. <laughs> Just a tad, but uh, I still get to do things that you guys can't do. I can be at less than two knots at 10 feet and I'm not stuck in a tree. Well, theoretically, anyway. Tree, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I, I came close once. <laughs> but the only way you guys can all be at uh, doing less than two knots and only be 10 feet off the ground is if you were stuck somewhere. Yeah. Whereas, uh, for me, that's ops normal. <laughs> wedged. Wedged, more likely. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Micah, um, now, of course, uh, you know, you, you fly for a living, but um, you were saying that uh, you're not, you haven't been doing as much, uh, you know, private flying lately. Why is that? Have you been spending money on other things? Oh, yes. Uh, I, I did something really silly and I bought a house. Oh, no. Oh, dear. There's the flying. There goes the flying. There goes a lot of other things. No, I bought a lovely uh, three-bedroom house in uh, suburban Adelaide, so that's where pretty much my whole pay packet goes into. So uh, haven't been able to do any private flying uh, for that reason, but also the weather in Adelaide has been somewhat average. Ironically, you know, I still have to fly in that weather for a living. So go figure. <laughs> go figure. I think I just heard 20 years of his life go whoosh. <laughs> oh, uh, probably 30 because I'm not married. Oh, well, no, so no, many no, comments, so, so, so little time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, weather in Adelaide has been somewhat average and uh, ironically I still have to experience it for work. There you go. Now, Mike, um, we can hear lots of aircraft in the background. Um, we should point out that you're talking to us from Sydney and uh, you must be near a flight path. That's correct. I'm, uh, I'm at the front of my parents' place in the suburbs of Sydney. Uh, it's uh, actually under the northern uh, departure and arrival paths for Bankstown Airport where I first learned to fly. So that's a, I don't know if you can hear it, that's an R44 helicopter just flying over. So the Bankstown step is just above my parents' house, and above that is all the uh, stars, standard terminal arrival routes for the big Sydney airport. Mm, crikey, how well. It should make some great background noise for this uh, for this podcast scene. Excellent. Uh, it's uh, got to get the interest from somewhere, and all I have to do is look up. Okay, well, this podcast is uh, not, of course, us all gloating about our flying thing. You know, it's, it's not often I get to gloat, though, folks, let's be honest, when it comes to <laughs> flying. Your, so, well, you know, there was that time too. I flew in the Hercules, and well, yeah, we're not going yeah, to that yeah, anyway. Yeah, 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 and the tanker, and the, and the, and the, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yes. So what have we been up to? Well, there's been a lot of things going on aviation-wise this year, and although we haven't been putting a lot of podcasts out, we've been storing a lot of content. So uh, this one's going to be a bit of a mixed bag of uh, interviews that uh, the four of us have recorded over the last couple of months. So we'll kick it off with my uh, interview with uh, Air Marshal Jeff Brown, the Chief of Air Force. Been promising that one for a while, and I finally got it ready to go. It was a little noisy, unfortunately, in the area where we recorded it, but still a great chat with him. Uh, Grant, you've been down to Werribee again to talk to the folks at the B-24 Liberator Project. That's right, mate. Uh, They just recently got recognition from Engineers Australia, uh, heritage recognition for the hangar they're in and also for the B-24 itself and the restoration project. So I uh, shot down there for the uh, ceremonial unveiling and managed to record a couple of interviews with uh, folks we've never had on the show before. Fantastic. Now, Cathy, you've been talking to a gentleman by the name of Kingsley Just who's been doing some interesting things. Yeah, isn't that a great name, Kingsley Just? It is really, rather regal, really. I heard the name, I knew I had to meet that man. (laughs) (laughs) He said, we can do a phone interview. I said, no, no, I need to get out of the house. <laughs> we had a lovely time chatting about his um, achievements. So he got a world a Guinness World Record for the most number of continuous rolls in an aircraft, and um, the previous record was four hundred and twenty. And he on that day did nine hundred and eighty-seven. And he Lord. said, "If I'd known that I was that close, because he had a guy on the ground counting out the time, but not counting out the rolls, and so he had decided." that he would stop after an hour. But he said, if I'd known that I was at 987, I just would have done the extra 13 to make it a clean 1,000. But, um, yeah, that's what he did, so good on him. Yeah, Raising money for uh, medical research for into a condition that his son has. I've got to say, if uh, if I was involved in that record, uh, just shortly after getting that record for most roles, I think I'd turn around and get the record for the most bath bags filled. Much and all as I love um, aerobatics, I think that would just wipe me out. <laughs> That's impre- he said he didn't feel sick. He said he got a little bit of tingling in uh, a little bit of pins and needles in one of his little fingers just because he was holding on so tight. But other than that, he said he didn't feel sick and he actually got a bit bored. He said, I started to think about other things. And um, yeah. <laughs> well, as, <laughs> as, as you do when you're twirling around the sky 900 times. Yeah. yeah. He sent a query letter to Guinness about attempting the most number of rolls in an hour and they came back and said, how about you do the most number of continuous rolls in an aircraft? I guess because that record had already already been set. And um, he thought, oh, that looks really hard. But anyway, there's never a good time for these things. So, um, yeah, he set off and did it. He said the hardest part was maintaining momentum in the planning stages and getting on top of the paperwork and all that stuff. Fantastic. Well, that interview will be coming up a bit later on in the show. And uh, also, Mike has put together a fantastic package of interviews that he recorded at the uh, recent Centenary of Military Aviation Air Show a couple of months ago now at uh, Point Cook. And, uh, Micah, um, your love of warbirds and your love of classic aircraft uh, really showed through. You're actually in your element there. Um, Absolutely. Uh, If there was a good testament to celebrate the Centenary of Military Aviation, was standing there on the flight line with all these old gypsy engines just purring away like cats. And it wasn't just little gypsy engines. You had the Caribou there. You had the Dakota DC-3 there. Just all the military types of engines going. You just had to close your eyes and ignoring the commentary you could hear in the background, you were there 100 years ago. It was fantastic. Excellent. And a a wonderful uh, 35-minute package you've put together there, mate. You know, the great thing about having Micah work for us is that, uh, in fact, kathy has been doing this too later. They're they're doing their own editing. I think this is wonderful. Winning for Steve. (laughs) Jeez, I I love this. I like to take control of 
off the bloopers, Steve. <laughs> That'll never happen, Kathy. Not as long as I draw a breath will that ever happen, I can tell you right now. <laughs> I think I sent you folks bloopers, didn't yes, I? You certainly did, and they'll be coming up Don't right at the end. do that, Micah. You should have <laughs> run me. I, I, I'm, I'm proud that I'm not perfect in a way. <laughs> I think now we need to have coffee, Micah. No, yes, I, yes. Uh, let me know when you're in Adelaide. Well, then I'm, I'm totally God. winning because I uh, I didn't have any bloopers at all in my B24 segment. Yeah, that's true. But uh, we haven't finished this recording session yet, so I'm sure we'll generate a few. Anyway, moving on. No doubt. <laughs> we also uh, caught up with uh, John Fisher, an L-39 pilot, actually an, an ex-United States Air Force pilot at our recent Wings Over Illawarra trip, or as it turns out, Grant, Winds Across Illawarra, I think probably was a more apt uh, description. Yeah, it was definitely a bit on the uh, windy side and with uh, aircraft parked on the crosswind runway, they couldn't make use of it. First time ever they've been sitting there going, gee, I wish we had the crosswind runway going. Normally they just go up off the uh, main runway, but sadly not to happen this time. Yeah, so uh, I tell you what, he's got a really interesting story to tell about uh, his career uh, flying in the United States Air Force and uh, how he came to be working out there at Wollongong, now flying L-39s, living the dream, I must say, mate. Oh, I reckon, mate, I reckon. That's uh, that's pretty good. I, I, Yeah, I wouldn't half mind that job. Absolutely. Well, let's kick it off with my interview with Air Marshal Jeff Brown, and uh, we've got a big show coming up, and uh, at the end we'll come back and annoy you a little bit more. We've got a few shout-outs, some interesting things happening in our community of uh, interested aviation listeners, so uh, there'll be some good things to talk about there. Let's kick it off. We are here at Point Cook and I'm very privileged to be sitting here with the Chief of Air Force, Air Marshal Jeff Brown. Uh, Air Marshal Brown, thanks very much for taking some time to talk to us. My pleasure. Now, um, the significance of the day, we're here, the 100 years of military aviation here at Point Cook. Can you tell us from an Air Force perspective, obviously, you know, what this means to the Air Force today? Well, there's not too many times you get to do 100, 100 years I guess not. of military <laughs> aviation. So, to do it on the same weekend, and, and this is a very speci- special weekend, that we actually flew the box kite 100 years ago when it all started. Aviation Australia, I think, is is special. So we've got uh, pretty much the full spectrum of uh, Air Force aeroplanes from the box kite right through uh, on display today, including all of our current current types. So it's a pretty special day. There certainly has been. It seems like most of the Air Force is here today in terms of aircraft type, but there's been a really uh, big focus on the box kite, hasn't it? It, it has. It has. Uh, well, I think it was very special, you know, weather conditions had to be right and everything, but yesterday we flew it to the second, a hundred years later, uh, right. that, it, that it flew in 1914, so uh, it was great. Plus we've got the other the other two types here as well on the static display, uh, so I don't think there's too many Air Forces in the world can kind of do that. Yeah, and of course here at Point Cook they, uh, they can boast it's the oldest continually operating military base in the world. Yeah, we don't use it a lot these days, so, uh, you know, RMIT is probably more but we certainly uh, put C-130s and uh, other aircraft in here occasionally. Yeah. Do they still do much here at all? Like, are there any sort of Air Force operations here, apart from the occasional transient operation? Uh, there's, still a, uh, there's still a sort of base squad. We've got the museums, probably the main uh, unit that we've actually got here. Yep. Over time, we'll actually move some of the, the units that are in Labatt down, down here as well. So it's right. Now, of course, uh, we talk a lot about uh, Air Force history, and we'll, we'll go on and talk about that in a minute, but uh, we always like to ask everybody uh, who comes on the show about their history. And uh, you joined the Air Force in 1980, so it's obviously been a long path to uh, get to where you are now. Yeah, no, it's uh, 34 years ago now, yeah. basically, so uh, and it's been a great career. I've had uh, a lot of great experiences flying different types. You know, started off flying helicopters and then... Uh, 
did a lot of instructing and then into the F-18s and F-11s and, uh, yeah, still fly occasionally these days. Okay, what do you, what do you fly these days? What do you get out well, to pri- privately? Oh, uh, yeah, I've got, I've got my own uh, sailplane glider, so I still uh, still fly that. Probably only uh, once a year. I, I go, to, go to our national championships and compete. I get about 40 or 50 hours in about two weeks. Oh, nice. That nice. does me for the year. <laughs> well, that's pure flying, isn't it? So it is. Flying, yeah. It is. It is. So I've been doing that since I was about 13 or 14. Right. And got a scholarship. And uh, always sort of kept kept it up in between my military flight. Right. So that's a good point, coming through cadets. Is that your initial interest? Is that how you became interested in coming in? Yes. You know, I, I started on cadets. I was always interested in flying. And, uh, you know, we've still got a great cadet organisation, about 7,000 cadets. And, 168 units right around Australia. So if you are interested in the Air Force, it's still not a bad way to go in. It's a great recruiting yeah, tool, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, you talked about uh, flying helicopters. Let's talk about it. CH-47s, a great unique shot. aircraft. They are. Yeah. They are. They are incredibly flexible. Uh, just could could lift an amazing amount of stuff. Uh, didn't have the same sort of limitations as other helicopters because they were dual, dual rotor. Uh, yeah, it was an amazing three years. I got about 1,000 hours so tell us about uh, some of the uh, obviously such a unique helicopter and counter rotating blades. Is that is that a good? Is it a stable helicopter? I often think that helicopters should defy the laws of physics and screw themselves into the ground, but maybe not so much with the Chinook. No, but uh, you know you just got to do some amazing things with it, uh, lifting containers off ships, lifting Boston aircraft out of New Guinea, flying around New Guinea, well, uh, lifting loads, bulldozers, and things like that. Yep. Uh, working with the army. With, Artillery, uh, moving fire support bases from one place to another. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. I'm interested about the the dynamic of flying with something dangling underneath, and I guess the pendulum effect is—is is that obviously a very challenging thing to learn to come to grips with? It is, and it de- depends very much on the load as well. Uh, different loads have different characteristics. Um, take for example, Land Rover. You could probably only do uh, take it at about 100 knots. The more unstable the load was, the slower that you had to go. Occasionally when you experimented with loads, uh, you'd have to drop them off because they got too, too unstable. Right, OK. And I guess uh, wind would be, a, uh, obviously, a weather conditions and that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. although the Chinook was uh, a little less prone than most helicopters to wind direction because of the double rotors. So it, uh, it could take off downwind and, and basically with the, with the two rotors, you didn't have the same limitations as uh, tail rotor helicopters. Yeah. Do they have um, a good engine out? Um, you know, for example, um, how do you auto rotate these things to the ground? We don't, don't have to because it's. Uh, it had two engines, uh, com- transmissions on the front of those. They went in a combining transmission, then two sh- one shaft to the front, one shaft to the back, another transmission to drive the rotors. So if you lost lost an engine, the one engine would just keep driving both rotors. So it wasn't it wasn't a big emergency. And obviously we're, um, you know, been used to great effect, particularly over in the Middle East area of operations. Yeah, they've done some great things over in uh, Afghanistan. They've been, uh, because the conditions in Afghanistan have required a lot of performance because it's high, it's high altitude. And the Chinook, in lots of ways, is the ideal helicopter for us. Now, I wanted to talk to you, obviously, about uh, transitioning from rotary wing aircraft, and particularly something as unique as the CH-47, uh, into flying fast jets. That's a, a rather different path to take. Yeah, although the way um, Air Force does its pilots course, it still does its pilots course, we basically uh, train 
to Jet Steed and when I was around we had the Mac in 326. Mm. So it was just, it was really a matter of just refreshing on the jets because our basic training had taken us that far anyway, so it really wasn't too much of a problem. Is that, that's something I find, well, it seems to me that that's unique to the Royal Australian Air Force or, I guess, smaller-sized air forces like ours where people tend to multitask. I spend a lot of time exposed to the US Air Force where it seems if somebody flies Type A, that's what they stay in. I, th- I think that the small air force, and it's one of the advantages of the small air force, is you need to have flexibility with your people. And uh, when the Air Force owned the helicopters, it was a great breeding ground for, for fighter pilots in lots of ways because we could, they could actually... Uh, they could actually get a lot of captain hours quite quite early, and you got uh, experience very quickly, and uh, you matured. And then they had a look at you to fight fighters after that. Yeah. And do you still find that most young young people coming into the air force have got their eyes on fast jets? Well, I think so at the start. Yeah, certainly. But it really doesn't matter what you, what you fly. The experience is amazing. You know, if you look at C-17s and C-130s and P-3s. They're pretty exciting operations. So. Well, all of our listeners would know, they've been listening to our show for a long time, that the Hercules is my favourite. If Had I ever been successful to get into the RAF, that's what I would have wanted to fly. But yeah. I, I find myself unique in that viewpoint sometimes. No, uh, well, uh, you know, its nickname is the Fat, Fat Albert, but it's been the workhorse of the Air Force for 50 years. Yeah. And, uh, it's been an amazing airplane, and uh, the crews have amazing experiences. So I've, I've flown into, into Afghanistan with them. You know, just recently they did a lot of great work in the Philippines on typhoons. And, uh, they'll be around forever, won't they? They'll be around for uh, yeah, a while longer. Let's talk about uh, the role of the RAF uh, today. Obviously, we've looked at the history of it, but going forward, it's been a great time to be in the Air Force. So many new platforms coming on stream. It's a really exciting time. It is, and I, I often tell people when I'm talking, I used to put up a slide a couple of years ago, all the platforms that we had and all the platforms we'd have in five or six years' time in 2020. And there were only three common types. They were the C-17, uh, C-130J and the Hawk. And every, every aircraft that we've got, every platform from our, our radars to our air traffic control systems is changing out. So it's been a pretty busy time. And the C-27J, that's the one I'm personally looking forward to. Yeah. Very much. I flew in Italy uh, just before Christmas. It's on its way to the States at the moment. It's about six of them on the production line in, in Italy, so I'm very much looking forward to it coming on board. Ever since we retired the Caribou, we've had a bit of a gap in terms of our ability to get into small airfields. And, uh, once we get the C-27, we've pretty much got a full-spectrum airlift capability. And quite a lot of uh, commonality between, uh, or we're told, between that and the Hercules in terms of operating the aircraft. Yeah, the uh, front cockpit is, is very similar. Um, the engines, of course, are, are very similar as well. So it's kind of a mini Hercules. Baby Hercules, we like to call it. Anything that can uh, be that big in barrel roll is something that uh, can't be all bad, I say. Yeah, it's a pretty tough aeroplane. <laughs> and uh, that's exactly what you want. With the operations in the Middle East obviously uh, drawing down, I guess uh, that's you've obviously had spent a lot of time providing an air bridge across that part of the world in particular. As that starts to draw down, what are the future challenges? Is, it, is this now going to be a time of consolidation, of retraining for the Air Force, do you think? Yeah, it's funny. I've still got 386 people in the Middle East, so we, we haven't drawn down all that much. So we've still got two C-130s over there. Right. I, I think we're starting to just change roles to a certain extent. Um, while we've been committed to the Middle East with the P3s and uh, the C-130s, because we've still got hair in there as well with UAV, yep. uh, we had a lot of our ground support people in Afghanistan from airfield defence guards through to air traffic controllers. 
I said to somebody the other day, since 2003, every element of the Air Force has been deployed at some time in the last 11 years. And is it obviously bringing a lot of experience back to Australia that can be passed on to future generations of uh, service people? I, I think, and uh, if you talk to former chiefs, chiefs of the Air Force, they, they go around and they talk to our people at the moment, they're, they're amazed at how operationally focused the outfit is. But just because we come out of Afghanistan, um, I gave an example with when we had the P-8 uh, announcement the other day that uh, I had P-3s up on uh, Operation Sovereign Border, three P-3s there. Yep. There were two P-3s off the coast of Hawaii doing US submarine force. And there was another one flying across to Western Australia to work with the P-8 uh, on an anti-submarine course that we were doing. So, you know, it's, it's about building that full spectrum of skills that you need. It's certainly an interesting uh, dynamic, actually, I've flown with the Royal Australian Air Force, where obviously interoperability with uh, particularly, I guess, our allies in the United States is so important. But our Air Force is doing a lot of roles that their Navy does. You talk about the, the P-8 and even flying Hornets. It's, it's quite an interesting, uh, from my point, it's quite interesting. Yeah, well, we actually have a lot of uh, good interaction with the US Navy because we've got some common common types. Uh, I, but to be honest with you, US Navy aviators aren't that much difference to uh, you. United States Air Force aviators yeah. all the same. Once you get off the boat, I guess the doctrines are pretty much the same. Oh, yeah, even on the boat, they're not that different. <laughs> they're still flying fighters, they're still flying aeroplanes, so yeah. it's, a, it's a common thing. The challenges are all common. Yeah. I think that's why yeah, Air Forces around the world always uh, get on pretty well together because we, we all face uh, the big part of the thing, which is all about the engineering and logistics and sustainment. That's the hard part. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, one of the points you brought up there, of course, was the Heron, and of course UAVs are becoming a, a bigger and bigger factor in not only military, I guess, but, but civil operations as well. Do you see an expanded role in the future for this type of platform? Certainly as we go, go forward, uh, I'm looking forward to it. I, I think where UAVs have really come into their own is the long endurance capability. Mm. Yeah, we call them unmanned, but the reality is they actually take more manning than the... Uh, oh, I've heard that, yeah. ...than uh, <laughs> man as, as straight as that is. So... Uh, I, I think for a lot of roles, they'll, they'll, uh, they don't necessarily always replace bad aeroplanes, but they certainly bring different and enhanced characteristics. It's like a force projection type of idea, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, well, if you look at the, if you look at the Triton P-8 uh, comparison, yeah. you need both, both aeroplanes. The Triton type, type uh, UAV can stay out there for longer, but it can't drop torpedoes. Yeah. It can't uh, launch a harpoon. Uh, it can't drop an SCC rescue kit, so, uh, but it can stay up there for a long time to yeah. the surveillance stuff, So You still need that human that human factor in there to make the decision ultimately. Well, the human factor's even there on the, on the UAVs. This is a popular misconception. Uh, you know, humans are in the loop the entire time on a UAV. That's why we actually call them remotely piloted air vehicles. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, the saying that goes around is that the uh, the last fighter pilot's already been born, but obviously as an ex-fighter pilot yourself, you might disagree with that. Oh, look, I, I think that that's still open to question. As with a UAV, as you make it more complex, like a joint strike fighter, if you want a stealth UAV, you've got to invest nearly as much money in it as you do in a joint strike fighter. The only thing you're saving is actually the uh, person in the cockpit and the... Uh, life support system. So that's fine. And you say, well, the limitation in a fighter is probably human endurance and ability to pull G. But there is a limitation in UAV, which is called the communication network. So as we increasingly have to fight against uh, 
cyber warfare, uh, you've got to be careful that uh, the UAV isn't vulnerable to that. Yeah, so it's... I'm, I'm not sure which way which way it'll go. A new world, new challenges, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the challenge. So, but... Yeah, the man fight has been uh, been sunk probably 40 years ago too, as well, and uh, it never occurred that it's way. Still there, so it's still there. I still, I think there's options as we go forward. I'm a great fan of uh, swarms. You know, small, cheap UAVs controlled by a man fighter. Yeah. I think that might be the way we, we go in the future. So, there's just lots of lots of areas. Just quickly before we finish, uh, speaking of, uh, of the future, we've got the F-35. Uh, yesterday the announcement was made of the first two pilots to go over to the United States and start uh, the conversion training, so exciting times for them. Yeah, the first two aeroplanes uh, roll out sometime mid- mid-year and uh, we'll, they'll start training at the, at the end of the year and we'll start to build up our uh, training cadre. The funny thing is the challenges with the F-35, I'm, I'm pretty confident with program at the moment. The real challenge is actually swapping across from the F-18 into the F-35. That's an enormous task for Air Force as we go forward. Should be a, a, particularly keeping in the Super Hornets on stream, I suppose, that they'll still have a role for many years to come, but the, the classics so, yeah. will go. Yeah, yeah the, the Super Hornets will be there. There'll be a set of decisions to be made in the 2020s and what the world looks like mm. uh, as to when they replace the Super Hornets. Very hard to say, isn't it? Yeah. yeah very hard to say. Very hard to but say. the good thing about having the JSF is there'll be a hot production line there in the, in the decade between the 20s, 20s and 30s. So yeah. if we do need to change, we can change them out pretty rapidly. Well, I believe as we record this, there's about 70 of them flying now. So uh, obviously it's a, it's a concept that's going forward. You I mean, it might be controversial, but they all are. It doesn't really seem to matter what they are. Well, there's, there's actually 100 flying. Right, well, there you go. And by the time we get our first first squadron, there'll be 700 of them flying. Well, there you go. And uh, that's more than super ones around, around the world. The other thing I wanted to ask you about just before we finish is the new uniforms, which are the new general purpose yeah. uniforms. How, how has that been received? Oh, I think by uh, people it's been pretty pretty good. It, it's always been uh, a point of contention when we wear the same camouflage uniform as the Army, especially when we do the HADR tasks and uh, you know helping the community in Ipswich and floods and things like that. Uh, personnel always get called Army by the media, which is... Which, has been a problem for us for quite a while, so uh, there's been a, a real calling for a separate, separate identity. And, uh, I'm pretty happy with the result. Well, we need to school the mainstream media. I noticed one outlet here the other day was promoting the new generation Hercules as a, uh, a P3 flu pass, so I think we have a little bit of education to go get with those guys. Yeah, no, I think uh, there isn't a lot of expertise out there on, on aircraft. Absolutely. Okay, well, Air Marshal Jeff Brown, it's been a privilege to speak to you, and uh, thanks very much for spending some My time pleasure. with us. Thanks very much. Thank you. Doug Lindsay, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. You're the president of the B24 Restoration. That I am, proudly, yes. How long have you been president? Four years. This is my fourth year. And how long have you been involved in the project? About 20. That's a long time to be involved in restoring an aircraft. It's a long time, but we're in no hurry. And how's everything going? I mean, this is quite a momentous day with the uh, engineering heritage recognition. This is another step in our progress. Uh, We're progressing towards building, our, having our own property, uh, which is which is in progress now, and also uh, building another hangar to, to house this aeroplane, because this hangar is not big enough. Uh, this hangar will then be turned over to manufacturing the second aircraft, which is the Airspeed Oxford, which we're in building at the same time. Yes. 
Uh, last time I was down here, the boys were uh, busy working away, clearing off uh, some of the older parts and seeing what they could salvage. Uh, well, now we're up to the stage of building, finishing off the one of the main spars of the middle wing section of the Oxford. So, Excellent. It's another long project. I'm not seeing a lot of change on the aircraft um, since last time I was here a year or so ago, which means that we're obviously at the point where uh, it's the 90% on the inside that uh, takes the time. We're now de- have you had a look inside the aircraft? I haven't had a chance to go through, but I see the bomb sites installed. We're, oh, there's more than that installed inside the aircraft. We are at the nitty-gritty end now because the main frame and structure is there, but to support that we need to install all the electric wiring, all the petrol lines, the fuel, the hydraulic lines, cables, and, and that's why you can't see any difference. But if you look at the wing now you can see hydraulic lines appearing uh, along the front of the wing. Everything's being run through, yeah? Yes, because uh, yeah. the ultimate aim is that when we get to our new hangar and, it's, and the plane is complete, we'll be able to roll it out and start up all four engines one after the other. Oh, that's going to be gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, Do you think it'll be able to taxi or will it just be static We're, firing? Um, no, we have nowhere to taxi it to. We'd have to go to a, an aerodrome and there's just not an aerodrome around here that's uh, suitable. No, it's not really worth uh, putting down a whole lot of concrete to taxi it back and forth. And oh, it, back it, it, it'll, it, it, it may move a little bit, you know. <laughs> I just inch it forward here and there. <laughs> just, a, just a little bit. Uh, don't show that it does actually move. But we've got to do all this while we still have people who can fly the aeroplane. That's the whole thing. That is a major issue. That's, a, that's another knowledge thing because the, the only one, we've got two here. One's not here today, but another chap, Mr. Ed Crabtree. Oh, he's here today? He's here today. Oh, excellent. He might remember how to fly it, I don't know. But uh, otherwise, they have to come from America. That's the only trained pilots that there are. We're not even sure of the start-up procedure, so, you know, so we have to just wait until we get to that stage and then go and find somebody who can show us what to do. Because yeah, I think there's only two flying in the world at the moment. I, I think so, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the knowledge is there, but it's very limited and very hard yeah. to come by. Um, over and above the Liberator, and you've mentioned the Oxford. Yes. I understand you've also got grand plans for, like, a Tiger Moth and an Anson? Yes. We eventually hope to have uh, the four aircraft that were used by Australian pilots during World War II who progressed to flying four-engine bombers. So we had the Tiger Moth first, which was the single engine. Then we had the uh, Airspeed Oxford and the Anson, which were twin engines. Airspeed Oxford first, and then Anson second. And then finally graduate to the four-engine four uh, version. The big one. So we want those four planes in here. We don't want the same planes that everybody else has got. I mean, people just... A lot of museums collect planes, which is fine, but ours is a dedicated uh, museum, dedicated to memory of those who fought in these aeroplanes, so we want to keep the thing focused on that one, one part. Well, it's a grand goal to have, and it's been great over the last few years coming down and seeing the progress developing and uh, recording chats with the members of the team. Congratulations on uh, holding all this together and keeping it going, and uh, also congratulations on your heritage recognition. Thank you very much. And one final word, we're always open to more volunteers coming down to help because the the ones we've got are getting older and uh, less productive, so if anyone else is interested, please come down to our hangar and sign up. Excellent. We'll pass the word. Thank you very much. Thank you. Alex Bate, National President of uh, Engineers Australia, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You've been down here to announce that uh, this site has been selected for uh, engineering heritage. 
Can you explain a little bit about engineering heritage uh, within yeah. Australia? Yes, uh, Engineers Australia has a uh, heritage recognition program uh, which has been running since uh, the mid-1980s. It recognises uh, engineering works of significance of the older era or be it of recent era. There's a plaque ceremony involved and we establish a plaque to recognise that engineering work. So how does that process run? How do sites get nominated? Yes, we have um, a, a committee which uh, looks after that process um, uh, in each of the states all around Australia and they identify projects which are of significance. A report is uh, generated by uh, the team around them. And in this case, uh, we've had uh, university students uh, have been mobilised uh, to uh, prepare, uh, do some research work and prepare a report. Uh, they submit the report and then it's evaluated. And if it's considered to be of significance, uh, it becomes uh, recognised and then we go through a, uh, a process of having a uh, plaquing ceremony to involve the local community that's been involved in that activity. OK, which is what we've just had today. That's correct. Both the one in front of the aircraft and the one outside. That's right. This, this is a unique uh, um, ceremony this time because there are two uh, plaquing ceremonies at the one time. Normally you have a, unique, you have a single ceremony for a particular project. But in this case, we've got um, the, the B-24 uh, Liberator aircraft and we have the, the actual hangar itself, which is recognised as an uh, engineering heritage uh, uh, project. So what are the criteria for selection? What, what, what are you looking for when you go through to, to recognise heritage? Uh, oh, certainly we look at the significance of the works um, in terms of the engineering context of, it, of its contribution to, the, to society as such. Its uh, works, the achievements that it's been, it's been, uh, and, and the level of recognition it's um, it's actually overall had by the community. You know, they're all elements uh, in that part of the program. So for the aircraft itself, it's been the restoration project to get it back to where it's at and where it's going to be. Yes, that's right. It's it's the combination of the actual aircraft itself, and and in this case here the the restoration project uh, to to bring it from. Uh, amazing sources from all around uh, all around the world and uh, uh, actually produce uh, what essentially is a working model yeah mm. that's been fantastic and the of course as you were saying during the, um, the ceremony the the building itself with uh, the Australian hardwood and uh, it is pretty unique in that respect that's correct um, the Australian hardwoods would have been um, quite unique in that era since that time uh, Australian hardwoods have actually spread around the world a bit more uh, but uh, having that sort of uh, construction available uh, was shows the resourcefulness of the Australian engineers. Anything else you'd like to say about the uh, award? Well, I'd just like to just reiterate the dedication of the particular team that's been involved, uh, both from Engineers Australia perspective in terms of bringing it forward as a project, and also the actual workers here you know, of the uh, B24 B Liberator uh, Restoration Group that have been um, so assiduously working over so many years uh, to produce uh, what is a fantastic effort in a in a hangar, which uh, probably probably is Australia's biggest men's shed. Yeah, it definitely is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, the, the, uh, the boys do a lot of work down here and uh, and the ladies who support them and so on. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's a fantastic effort. Fantastic effort, yeah. yeah. Okay, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Andrew Ellsbury, Member of the Victorian State Parliament, welcome to the show. 
Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. No worries. Now, uh, wonderful that you've made it down for the show. You said you've got a bit of a heritage here. You've uh, driven past this area quite a bit. Absolutely. As a kid going down uh, Geelong Road, past the hangars, it was always something that I kept my eyes open for, uh, just sort of imagining what would have happened here back in uh, the Second World War when all the training was going on. Today in the, uh, the speeches earlier, you mentioned uh, that we're really much closer now than we've been for a very long time on getting this uh, preserved heritage area and and also a new hangar. Yes, yes indeed. There's an application in with Heritage Victoria at the moment to preserve this hangar here, hangar number two, so that development can occur of the blocks further to the west of here, but preserving this spot for the B-24s, providing them with uh, space to be able to build a new hangar where the B-24 can be completely put together, putting its tail section on because the tail planes are rather big, and also putting the extra extensions onto the wings that she deserves so that the wings can be out at their full length. Now, I understand uh, from previous chats down here that there's some issues related with the hangar in terms of asbestos and things like that. Mm. Is is that is the heritage state status able to do around that, or will they have to re-engineer it? Uh, this, this is something that we're going to have to work on uh, once we've been given the heritage overlay of this area uh, and we've been given permission to actually build the, the new hangar. The B-24 will move out of this hangar that it's currently in into its new hangar, and then a new project will start for re-cladding of the uh, site. So that will involve a lot more money and that's something that we're going to have to work on to try and raise uh, either through the B24 Liberators or try and seek some federal and state government funding. That's a worthy cause that's for sure. Absolutely. Okay anything else you'd like to say while you're here? No no just as a RAF brat you know it's always been great to be able to come down here and uh, and pop in to see the B24s see what they're up to. Uh, They were actually the first group I came to visit after being elected so uh, and they've still got their hooks into me. Uh, It's a fantastic group of people and I really do look forward to being able to work with them on this project so that we can ensure not only the preservation of the plane but also the preservation of this hangar. Dan O'Connell, welcome yep. to Plane Crazy Down Under. How are you going? Not bad, thank you. And your good self? Yeah, not bad, mate. Not bad. You're a member of the B24 Liberator Restoration Association. And That's correct. I understand your association with the B24 goes back quite a way? Eight years I've been here. Okay. Eight and a half, actually, yes. Yep. And uh, what's your interest in the B24? Were you flying with them? I never had any interest in planes whatsoever. When I retired from work, I live in the state across the road here. We drive past, and I said, I must go in there, so they do one day. So my wife got sick of me being home, so she wheeled in there here after shopping. <laughs> so they said to me, oh, yeah, what do you used to do? I used to work at Ryan's in Elizabeth Street. We sold tools for 50 years. We need someone to clean up the tool store. There you go. That was my first job. I spent three months doing that. And then one day, um, the gentleman who was ha- helping the uh, project coordinator, Riveting, didn't show up. So I took his place and I finished up the next six years working with him from finishing putting the skins on and we did uh, half the hydraulic system. Okay. So you're pretty involved in the Clecos and bucking rivets but and stuff. Yes, so. yes. <laughs> There's 450,000 rivets in this plane. I only put it through half, I say. <laughs> So, yeah, it's a, it's a good project to uh, get you out it from It is. This. It's yeah. not only that, but it grows on you. Get, it, it's, you get involved with it, and all of a sudden it's part of your, your life. Yeah. And, and, and it keeps you out from under the missus's feet. Exactly right. Sift <laughs> your feet. Don't leave the paper there. And but, it's but, the, but the camaraderie amongst the blokes is really trippy. Yeah. And, and the skills that they've got, as I say, I'd sold all the tools all my life on you, but to use them in this position... And what they haven't got, we made. That was the biggest thing. We had engineers here. Poor old Ron Platt, he was 
my partner, he called me. I called myself a TA, tradesman's assistant, but no, he was my partner. What he taught me, and he lived for this plane, and all the work that he put into it and his knowledge, and, and camaraderie, unbelievable. We got, like, to talk about John Temby. He'd come from an architectural background, and he said here one day at one of our annual meetings, he said, I've never worked anywhere where someone can insult you, and you insult them right back. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's how it is. I've been down here when the guys are working, yes. and, uh, yeah, there's some interesting phrases bouncing that's across exactly the hangar. That's exactly right. <laughs> As I say, the camaraderie amongst them is really okay. terrific. Well, Dan, thank you very much for your efforts and uh, bringing this bird back to uh, static good. life. Good. Uh, we're looking forward to seeing her in the new hangar. Uh, fingers crossed that all comes together. So they asked me when it's going to be finished. I say, how long is a piece of string? Well, Dan, thank you very much. Good, thank you for the chance. Now, folks, what you're about to hear right now is the sound of the electric turret from the B-24. The mid-upper turret seat situated just behind the uh, cockpit was fully electrically operated for traversing and uh, turning and everything. So uh, the guys have it uh, repaired, ready to go, and uh, hooked it up to a battery. And Tony Mayer, one of the volunteers there, hopped into the turret and uh, spun it around a bit and uh, traversed the guns up and down and had a bit of fun. So it's it's not a long recording. You're basically hearing the sounds. It's uh, almost a little bit like a sound of a, an old Hoover or something like that. But uh, stick with it right to the end. It's classic where Tony gets out saying, I'm a little dizzy for obvious reasons because you've been spinning around. Enjoy. You've uh, just given us a quick demonstration of the uh, mid-upper turret. In the yes, yes, yeah, yes. Uh, Electric powered? Yes, it's all electric and manual. And uh, you're looking a little little spun, uh, oh. a little dizzy from that one. <laughs> if you keep going around in there in circles, you do get dizzy. Well, you don't have a lot of view, do you? No. Because uh, on the top here, there's a, a lot of uh, uh, perspex covers, yeah. and that's all the protection you've got. Yeah. This part here is uh, bulletproof and on the front. You don't have a bullet. piece behind your head? No. no. Wow. <laughs> no, that's all you got. Okay. Now, uh, which fits right up there behind the pilots. So it's fully electrically operated. It's fully electrically operated. So it, w- it would normally be running off the ship's um, electrical well, the bus. Air- aircraft, yeah. Okay. yeah. So, the, in the in the absence of an aircraft system, have you just got it hooked into a twelve volt battery, or? Yes, we're twenty four. Twenty four. Twenty four volts we use. Because the system on the aircraft itself is a twenty four volts right the way through. So, how long did it take you folks to get this working? Well, the electrician, we do have a electrical chappy here, and I think it took him about two years to get it going, okay. and did all the wiring on inside and what have you. We always do it on big demonstrations where we've got a lot of people here. And how did you get selected to... Because uh, I'm a skinny fella. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was going to say, there's not a hell of, I don't think I could get in that thing. But once it's in the aircraft here, you've got a fair bit of room to get inside it, so then you pull the seat up behind you. Do you get very claustrophobic in there? No. And how no, long? I don't. <laughs> how long have you been with the project? I've been here 11 years. Apparently, I used to work for Toyota for 25 years. I lost my wife in 2003. 
I've been here for 40 odd years and all the friends I've made since have never been in touch. So I didn't make new friends and I came here. And I took fun. an early package from Toyota. Okay. So with that early package, it set you up so you're able to come down here yes. and have fun at last. Well, I'm the hangar manager here, so, yeah. okay. so I spend a lot of time here. Well, and in terms of managing the hangar, what's, what's that role involved? Oh, it's more or less opening up and making sure that um, we can get parts for it and go and yeah. get them from the local shops if we can. If we're not, we send over to America to collect the materials and that. Like a lot of things for the front gun tariff. So you've been working a lot on the turrets? I'm not. There's a special guy that does that. He's doing that. He does it in his own time, in his own place, in right. his own garage. And then brings it down and here. And then brings it here. Yeah. Cool. We've got a lot of guys that do that the same. Same with the carpenters. We're building a airspeed Oxford. And he makes a lot of parts from home and, and builds them. So cool. it's been pretty good. Well, As I say, I've met a lot of new friends here and whatever. So yeah, it's been... Fantastic for me, anyway, in my first one. The times I've been down here, the camaraderie of the team, the, yeah. even, even with the insults, it's all been good. Yeah. <laughs> what we've tried to do, all the guys in here was all separated. Yeah. Now we're getting them all together so they talk to each other and you know, make friends and whatever. Yeah. Of course, they've been separated and don't talk to each other. And yeah. So it's working out pretty good at the moment. So. Well, congratulations. Yeah. It's a fantastic oh, thanks job. Thanks very much. Yeah. Thanks for the I demo. enjoy it coming yeah. down here. So. Uh, if I... If I had the time and could do it, I'd be down. It's like yeah. a giant uh, yeah. airfix model, yeah. isn't it? It is. Yeah. I've worked on everything on this egg. I've been working on the engines now for the last six years. Um, my boss, Tony, call him Tony too. <laughs> <laughs> and he's my boss. And they say, working on the engines. I've polished the old aircraft. I've painted the old aircraft inside since I've been here. So. That's happy. awesome. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, so. Well, Tony, thank you very much for You're your time. Welcome. And thanks for the demonstration of the yeah. turret. Navigate the long white cloud with Oz Runways. Oz Runways now has full support for New Zealand with VFR and IFR maps and all AIP volumes. Our intuitive interface makes Oz Runways the easiest to use electronic flight bag on the market. And unlike older products, everything you need is included in a simple annual subscription. So you're always up to date. Find out why Oz Runways has been the number one iPad electronic flight bag in Australia for over three years. Find Oz Runways on the iTunes Store for a free download and a free one-month trial. Upgrade your iPad to the best EFB. Try Oz Runways today. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. As pilots, we're always looking for ways to improve our proficiency and skills. And one of the best ways to achieve that is using a flight school dedicated to advanced skills training. In the Sydney area, that choice is the Australian Aerobatic Academy. From ab initio, advanced handling techniques, upset recovery training, right through to full aerobatic ratings. The Australian Aerobatic Academy provides thorough and professionally delivered courses to suit every pilot. And with bases at Bankstown and Wollongong, they've got Sydney covered. Go to aeroacademy.com.au to find out more or call 0404 065 201. The Australian Aerobatic Academy, taking your proficiency to the next flight level. G'day, this is Owen's Up. Just a quick note to let you know that my new ebook, 50 Tales of Flight, is now out on Amazon and iTunes. Find 50 Tales and my latest updates at owensup.com. In the meantime, sit back, relax, enjoy the show with Grant and Steve. 
Okay, so I'm here with Kingsley Just, who has just um, received the Guinness World Record for the most number of consecutive roles in an aircraft, which he performed in his pit special on the 1st of March this year at Lethbridge. Kingsley, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Thanks for talking to us. Can you tell me what's the difference between your role and a normal barrel role? Uh, the roles I did on the day are um, a, a modified barrel roll. So they'd um, pitch quite high, nose high, uh, roll slowly until I was inverted, and then quickly snap around to um, reduce the negative G on the um, inverted phase of things. And that, that, that helped out with the um, looking after the aeroplane and um, the fatigue level, so I could do as many as I did. And you did many, many rolls. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> How many did you think you were going? Well, what was the previous record? Uh, 408 was right. the previous record. And that's not a bad achievement? No. <laughs> um, we, um, I managed to do 987 on, on the day. And how long did that take? Uh, just under an hour. Right, so you're setting a fair old pace. Yes. Yeah. How many in a minute? How, so it you... works out to about an average of uh, 16, 16 a minute. So it was a marathon rather than a sprint. Yeah. So you just, when you roll, you just keep rolling? You didn't roll, stop, look around? The the requirement cool was... No. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been nice, but uh, the requirement was to um, uh, continuous rolls. So if there was a pause of any sort, uh, that would be the end of the record attempt. So if you'd taken off from Lethbridge, Leth which is near Geelong... Yep. Is it about Geelong? Yeah, uh, north of Avalon. Yeah. Um, and kept going, rolling all the way. <laughs> you might have ended up a long way away, but how did you um, deal with that? The, um, the idea was we had to stay within the sight of the judges so they could verify from the ground the um, amount of rolls. Yeah. So I had to do a, a racetrack pattern or a, a holding, holding pattern, which um, I, I found the tricky bit to continue to roll and turn at the same time. Uh, yeah, it was a, was a tricky bit for me. So was it a one kilometre length? Yeah, we stayed in about a one kilometre uh, aerobatics performance zone, just like the competitions or thereabouts. But, of course, I didn't get penalised for going outside the, um, no, the box. No, nor should you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if it was one kilometre long, how far across, or did you just do a Yui? Uh, pretty much just uh, a yeah, rolling fl Yui. flew in a straight line until I was getting a bit faint. Um, from the judges. Oh, not faint. No, no, friend, um, eyesight-wise. Can you tell me why you did it? What prompts someone to um, take the pits up and do that? Yeah, the, the idea was um, to raise money and awareness for um, some research at the uh, Florey Institute of Mental Health and Wellbeing. They're one of the only, um, one of only two labs in the world that are doing research into something that can help my... Um, my son's rare condition it's a it's a variant of acrodermatitis enthropathica if i can pronounce that properly <laughs> um, but it's a quite a rare zinc absorption um, problem so um, i wanted to um, meld my flying with um, well do something good with my flying anyway so it's a good way to bring the two together it's good that you could do it in an airplane and not like the american guy who did it in his kayak <laughs> took him to <laughs> he did 900 Eskimo rolls or something, didn't he? We just looked up. <laughs> 2,000, I think it was. Oh, was it 2,000? Yeah. took him 14 hours. I feel cold just thinking about <laughs> it in his kayak. Um, but you did some pretty funny things, not in the kayak, but to get ready um, to, to do this record attempt. 
starting with rolling down the grass and flying around on the playground. Yeah. And what was the, the point of all that? The kids loved it, actually, because our dad would be at the playground quite often. Just to try and condition my body t- into uh, rotating and uh, rolling. Mm. So um, I'd be on the... Um, anything that went round in the playground, I'd be on that going round and round and moving my head from side to side, um, trying to make myself a little bit motion sick to get used to it. Where's the best playground in Melbourne? Oh, Coburg Lake. Coburg Lake is brilliant. <laughs> and how did you prepare aerobatically? Uh, yeah, my, all, any of my days off, I went down to the airfield and um, went out and did some flying. So, um, and slowly worked my way up from small amounts to um, obviously the lots of rolls. And uh, while I was doing that, I was, um, uh, you know, taking the data of the aeroplane and um, checking fuel flows, oil flows, seeing um, if the aeroplane could do it first of all, and um, analysing all that data and that type of thing. That took quite a long, lot of time as well. Mm. Where did you get the idea? to get a Guinness a world record. Like, we'd all love one, but not everybody goes and does it. Yeah, I'm really not sure where, where the idea came from. It's, mm. um, That's a good idea. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, well we've, didn't, we did, we've done pretty well so far with the fundraising, so yeah. um, my heart was in the right place at least. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but all you get is two lines on the website and a certificate. And a paper certificate, yeah, and, and of course, worldwide fame. Yes, so. that's right. And bragging rights in the pub, should anybody ask. That's right. <laughs> um, so what happened on the day? How did that go? When you... We had to delay until about lunchtime. And then we moved to a different location to the aerobatic training area uh, where the cloud was a little bit higher. So, um, How many people were involved? So it's not just you and the timekeeper? No. And the guy with the box brownie? <laughs> <laughs> there, there was, I was really impressed, though. People just uh, were really keen to come and uh, donate their time and um, uh, come along for the ride, I guess. So, were most of them from the aerobatics club? Because you're a member of the Australian Aerobatics Club. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. We, we needed some expert judges to verify the attempt because mm-hmm. uh, no one from Guinness would actually come out. We'd spend thousands of really? dollars to bring them out. <laughs> Where's Guinness based? Uh, the should, UK. Should be Ireland, shouldn't yeah. it? Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, so we had some experienced judges coming out to verify uh, what they saw and the roles and, of course, a whole heap of ground staff to... Um, from radio operators, safety ground personnel, um, chase planes, um, photographers to record the attempt, um, people to work the barbecue and uh, yeah. keep stomachs happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a bit of a hiccup with the photography, wasn't there? That was um, yes. Unfortunately, did you find the tricky part was managing the whole thing, where you've got to manage the flying, the aeroplane, the crew, photographers. Yeah. Emails, stuff, that still work. That's what the hardest thing was, um, keeping together family, working, and um, I'm just not used to writing documents or doing emails and that type of thing. So the logistics of what Guinness wanted and um, also training and raising funds, um, very tricky. And, and halfway through my training program, I came very close to quitting I, I almost quit but um, it was only because people had already donated some money that um, <laughs> I kept on going nothing motivates more like the thought of having to give back the money that's right <laughs> yeah oh, that's good so what were you thinking while you're rolling around out there 
Did you think? Or you just focused on those I, dials? Yeah, I think because altitude. I think because we'd uh, done so much training beforehand, so much experimentation and um, analysing, that uh, it all just was second nature. It was just muscle memory. Yeah. And at times I actually got a little bit bored. Um, but, of course, you have <laughs> to refocus. <laughs> <laughs> that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever yeah. for a little while. So you got bored, but you did it for an hour. It only took an hour, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, just under an hour. So um, as soon as I had to turn around again, that's when I had to concentrate and... Um, line up. Yeah, line up. So. so you had a guy... Who was in the chase plan? So Andy Mac was... Andy McIntosh was in the chase plan. He's also an air traffic controller yeah. at, uh, at Melbourne. So um, at, uh, well, he was looking after the radio, uh, CTAF calls, area frequencies, monitoring all that, making sure that no other airplanes would uh, get in the way of me. Um, and of course, if something went wrong, um, if I got disorientated, he could um, talk me through uh, recovery as well as the safety people on the ground with the radio. Uh, Jeremy from Sky Thrills. What so, altitude were you at while you were doing all this? Uh, Two thousand feet was my target altitude. Mm. Um, I'd give myself a buffer of five hundred feet either way. Actually, actually I, was, I was happy on the day because I I kept between I think only a hundred feet either side of that. So I was. Yeah. Personally, I was proud of that, to yeah. stay within that band. So you're an air traffic controller. You do Melbourne Approach. Yep. Yeah. And that's a fairly uh, controlled, hard-thinking, hard-hitting, don't-talk-to-me, <laughs> yeah. I can't write emails, I'm just going to focus <laughs> on what I'm doing. And then you just break out on weekends and yeah, go aerobatic flying. Don't get confused with my fun side and professional <laughs> side. <laughs> Do you ever tend to decide as a jumbo, just barrel roll in on one eight? <laughs> well, I, I sometimes think that the 45 up lines are a little bit shallow on the judging side of things. Uh, so then there was an event once you'd finished, so you decided after an hour that you'd had enough? When, yep. So... Before you went up, you said to yourself, I'll do about 45 minutes and see what happens. Yeah, the, there was, um, the plan was to do 45 minutes, see how I was feeling, um, but then do not more than one hour. Um, so we stuck to that plan. And, yeah. Um, yeah, so headed back off to um, finish the attempt and off off to home for a landing. And then disaster strut. Yes, unfortunately. This is why it's going to be a good movie. It's going to be... <laughs> Someone's going to write the script for this, and we're going to sell it and make a million. Yes. <laughs> what happened? Was that sickening sound? Uh, yeah, the um, engine started to run rough, and I thought it was a partial engine failure initially, so um, I was trying to uh, fix that up. Um, but it ended up that, uh, yeah, the engine fully failed, and uh, I had to pick a paddock and, um, and try and land the thing, dead stick it in. What's the glide slope on a pit like? It's uh, pretty similar to a crowbar tied to a brick, I think. <laughs> crowbar off a cliff. Yeah, and it happens very quickly too. Yeah. So I had picked a nice area, a nice paddock, um, but just didn't quite have enough energy to make it to that. Yeah. Um, so I just had to pick a, um, a bit that wasn't so nice. Yeah, it's just that one rogue rock. Yeah, so I hit a rock on the, on the landing roll and the aeroplane flipped upside down. Um, have you had a force landing before? Was that the first time you've had to do it? Yeah, no, first time. Yeah. First time in it's real good life, that so. you do it in the Guinness World Book of Records. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was probably good that it happened on that day, not on a training day. And good that it happened after the flight. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think happened? The um, hypothesis is that the uh, flop tube got stuck on the inverted position 
So once you come up straight and level, there's uh, no fuel uh, getting to the engine. Mm. Um, yeah, because when we dip the tanks and check the oil, there was fuel in the tanks and oil in the engine. So, mm. um, so but it could have been um, a myriad of other things that, that might have gone wrong. Mm. So we'll put that behind us. And what's next? Um, I think... Um, you were in the paddock, weren't you? What, what happened when you were um, retrieving the aeroplane and your phone started going off oh, the yeah. next day? <laughs> yeah, so a, a mate who's, um, who's trying to sell his pit special um, phoned up and... Um, <laughs> Thought it was wa- a good time. <laughs> wanted to know whether I was okay, yes. Yeah. <laughs> And you were getting texts the next morning, weren't you, from the other partners in yeah, the syndicate? Yeah, I'm in the syndicate with uh, two other fellas, and um, they're straight on to um, the websites checking um, where we can buy our next aeroplane. So, um, <laughs> Are you going to tell them to do the next world record attempt? <laughs> I, I think that's enough world record attempts for the moment, at least. <laughs> so you'll go back to aerobatics? Yeah, looking to do some competitions. Yeah, tell us a bit about that, about your love of the birds, how, did, how it started. I think that's how it all started. I, was, um, I grew up on the, um, at Redcliffe on the beach yeah. and uh, just watching the seagulls and the pelicans um, flying along, just got fascinated with um, how they did it. Yeah. yeah, and then you went gliding. And so was there um, correlation between the gliding and the pelicans? When you're up there, did you think? Oh, oh I yeah, love I love watching close. the pelicans soar. You know, they hit, hit a thermal and up they go. And yeah, um, yeah, the gliding actually, the gliding probably helped with the uh, force landing a bit too. I was, yeah. yeah. How um, many hours gliding did you do? I've got about 150 hours gliding. Yeah, so not that many, but. Um, and then you went to Europe towing. Yeah, yeah. Played. Um, went over to Europe for a summer towing gliders in uh, France and Spain. How old were you then? Um, just on 19, I think. Yeah. yeah. And then family, career, big break in the flying. Yeah, had about a 15-year break in yeah. the flying. That's and everybody's uh, story. Everybody listening to this now will be going, <laughs> yeah, that's hard, hard months. That's right. <laughs> yep. Right, so you're back into it. Well, you certainly came back with a vengeance anyway. <laughs> yes. So congratulations and um, thanks for talking to us. Thank you very much. I'm here at the Centenary of Military Aviation Air Show in Historic Point Cook, Victoria. Down here in the Historic Flight Line there are six aircraft, all with their engines on. To my right is a Tiger Moth, next to him is an Avro Cadet, and ahead of me on the taxiway is a J3 Oster, behind him a Moth Miner, and to my left is a Beach Staggerwing and a Stinson Reliant. All of these six engines are on, all of these aircraft are about to taxi up for the demonstrations, and all of these aircraft look and sound great. Down here I'm in front of two very beautiful aircraft, one of which is a Stinson Reliant and the other is a Beach Staggerwing. And I'm um, here with its owner and pilot, Mr Chris Shine, who owns the Staggerwing. Chris, welcome. Good morning. And uh, tell us more about your aircraft. Uh, it's a 1942 Beechcraft Staggerwing. It was first, they first uh, designed and built in the 30s in America when it uh, started the Depression. I think they were about $8,500 then and they were pretty hard to sell because times are tough. Um, then the war came along and uh, they used, this aircraft was used 
uh, by the Navy as a instrument trainer plane and also for running fellas around the place, military personnel with lots of pips on their shoulders. It's the first um, corporate plane of the of the day really. It's a, the modern day, the old day Learjet or Cessna Citation. So uh, fellas, companies used to own those that probably had lots of oil wells and lots of money but uh, uh, there are about 700 of them made and this is one of only two or three in Australia. And uh, how'd you get in uh, possession of this aircraft? Well, yeah, it's a long story. I've I've been in general aviation most of my life and my wife also is a pilot. She um, had a photo of one of these in her office and I always said we'd end up with one of these things one day and um, I didn't think that would happen but we saw this advertised uh, three or four years ago in an aviation uh, trade plane and um, really it was at her insistence that we uh, went and had a look at it and uh, being buying an aeroplane or a, I think it's a bit of a luxury for a fella sometimes you'd be uh, general rule you'd be chopping wood or mowing lawns for the rest of your life to have this but it was uh, she was more the nagger so I'm, I'm lucky to have a wife who uh, enjoys aeroplanes and so we've ended up with this beautiful machine which we both love dearly. No, you're definitely the envy of many pilots and enthusiasts out there and uh... Uh, today you'll be demonstrating with uh, Mr Kevin Bailey and his uh, Stinson Reliance, so what will, what will be the process in your uh, demonstration? Well today yeah, we've talked with Kevin, we, we go out together, um, timing's very important, but um, after running the aeroplanes up we'll do that 15 or 20 minutes before we go to get the oil temperature up. Um, radial engines like the, the oil to be, uh, to be warm, um, uh, shut down the way Kevin's going to lead today, we'll take off I'll follow behind, you know, 30 seconds or a minute behind, and we're simply going to do a couple of low passes. That they're not aerobatic aeroplanes, so we're there to just show the public off their fine lines. They're both beautiful aeroplanes in the air. They individually, they are beautiful aircraft with beautiful paintwork, but in the air together, it is just pristine. It is absolutely pristine. No, we all enjoy it. Thank you very much for your time, okay, and you. uh, we'll uh, eagerly, eagerly watch uh, from below. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's real neat sitting up there looking at everyone down on the ground and feel uh, a bit of a celebrity taxiing back. There's a, you know, if we get a thousand photos taken of this aeroplane, we'll be taxiing back this morning. Oh, I've uh, taken a few myself, don't okay. worry. Good All on right, you. All right, thank you very much. My pleasure. All right, and uh, tell us more about um, the history of your aircraft and its uh, place in the yep. uh, military aviation scene. It was brought out to Australia by the Vacuum Oil Company in 1936 and first flew in October 1936 as their executive aircraft and they flew it around Australia checking out their various fuel installations. Um, it remained with them until the war and it was impressed into military service as a communications aircraft during the war. Um, Post-war it was then released and went back to private hands and was owned by several private owners through until 1970 and a fellow in um, Western Australia bought it, took it to the West. They did a bit of work on it but then in 76 it went back to a guy called Joe Drage at um, Wangaratta. He was actually Albury Wodonga and he had 20, um, wow, he had 20 classic aeroplanes which was rather good and um, in 1985, he was getting on a bit, he decided to donate them to the Wangaratta Air Museum at Wangaratta called Airworld and they ended up having 50 aircraft of all types uh, which was a wonderful collection but unfortunately when the Hume Highway was rerouted around the outside of the town their traffic uh, dropped off and they started losing money 
and it was ratepayers' money. So sadly they had to close the museum down. Sadly for them, but great for us because all these aircraft come out for sale and uh, we managed to acquire it then, 2003. Yep, and uh, what's the upkeep like on uh, this aircraft? Uh, well, now it's pretty good because uh, we took it home and pulled it completely to pieces right back to the last nut and bolt and uh, restored it completely. Um, so now it's pretty easy to keep because it's all new. <laughs> And uh, you'll be demonstrating this aircraft today, and uh, just explain the process that you're going to go through when you demonstrate this uh, aircraft. Well, this is only a fairly simple demonstration. The, the stagger wing and myself just do two flybys. So we just taxi, uh, get a clearance for takeoff, climb away, do two fly pasts, and then come back to land. So it's all pretty basic stuff. Yep, and uh, what's it like demonstrating as, oh, as a pilot? Oh, lovely. Oh, well, in this machine, I feel pretty special because we're flying the only one in Australia. Uh, it's very unique and uh, it has, you know, very classic 1930s lines, so I guess I'm a pretty proud owner <laughs> and uh, love, love displaying it to people because people seem to enjoy it and that's where I get my enjoyment. And you've come a long way from, all the way from Western Australia. Yeah. What was the journey like to get here and uh, what, what journey be like getting back? Oh well, it's, um, we had a very easy trip across, we were very lucky, we had tailwinds all the way. Um, and we did it over several days on purpose because we didn't want to push. So we stopped off in Adelaide and spent a day with a mate of mine and we flew down to Horsham and went fishing on the Wimmera River for a day <laughs> and then flew in here on Thursday. So it was a very leisurely trip, 16 hours of flying over four flying days. Um, very easy. Well, it's a beautiful aircraft. It is just the paint paintwork is just pristine and you look after it. It is a beautiful aircraft. Kevin, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. the taxiway in front of a Mark III Oster 1942 model. It is owned, that's the uh, Southern Knights doing their formation, it is owned by Alan Harding with his uh, young assistant Lloyd. Gentlemen, welcome. Yeah, thank you Micah. Yeah, thanks Micah. Uh, Alan, tell us uh, about this aircraft, its uh, history and its place with uh, the centenary of uh, military aviation. Well, it's uh, 1942 build, it served with the RAF and it's believed it went to Normandy a couple of days after D-Day, flew there on our artillery observation duties and was transferred to the RAAF when the Mark V Osters came along, along with another 60-odd Osters. And uh, how, how did you get in possession of this aircraft? The aircraft was advertised for some time in uh, Rag and Tube, the Antique Aeroplane Association's magazine, and uh, I went and looked at it and bought it. Since then, we've overhauled the engine and I've put about 500 hours onto the thing. Now, when I met you many years ago, this aircraft was in silver. Now, you've uh, surprised a lot of people at this uh, air show when you uh, landed and your aircraft was now painted green. Explain to us uh, the process that you had to go through to paint this aircraft and the uh, history behind it. Okay, well the all over foliage green is the standard RAAF markings for the use of the Oscar Pacific Theatre. And um, we decided to go back to the World War II RAAF colour and markings. Uh, basically, 
the aircraft was finished in uh, silver dough, which is the base coat for any subsequent painting. So we removed the old markings and uh, refurbished the silver base coat as necessary and refinished it green as you see it now. It looks splendid. It looks absolutely splendid. Now Lloyd, you, uh, you help Alan quite a bit um, and Alan is pretty much a mentor. Uh, just explain what do you do to assist with Alan? Just basically anything that he wants me to do. Uh, helping out, painting the aeroplane, doing anything after school or after work if I can. And you're only a young chap. Uh, how old and what year are you in at school? I'm 16 and currently in year 11. And you obviously love aviation. Um, what, aside from helping Alan with his aircraft, what else do you get up to aviation-wise, where you're from? I fly a lot of recreational aircraft. I've got my recreational pilot's licence. I obtained that before I was eligible to drive a car. And I took my mother for a first flight before I could even get my L's. How did she take that? She was scared. Very scared. Scared? Scared? Flying is a lot safer than driving a motor vehicle. Yeah, I told her that and she believes me. Now, last year at NatFly, uh, you became the recipient of a very uh, valuable prize. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, I received a gift scholarship uh, for $2,500 to help me with my flying training. It benefited me greatly. It took me up to my solo stage and my work at Macca's has helped me even further. And you obviously want to make aviation a career as such. Uh, where do you aspire to go to? I'm hoping Air Force, uh, either as a pilot or engineering. I'm not 100% sure at this stage. The airlines? Maybe. All right, and how much help is is Lloyd to you with this aircraft? Like You, you give him a lot of mentoring, which is great to see. Yeah. Oh, Lloyd's been an invaluable help, both in the maintaining of the aircraft and... Um, Pretty sure he enjoys a lot of the flyaways we go to with the Antiquas mainly, and uh, yeah, it's just a, a pleasure, pleasure to be with such a dedicated young person. Excellent. And now this aircraft is demonstrating today. Uh, just explain very briefly uh, what the demonstrations will uh, entail. It'll be flying with a trainer group consisting an Avro Cadet a tiger moth, a moth miner. Uh, it'll basically just do several passes in front of the crowd at about 200 feet. So not, not an aerobatic display. They weren't particularly an aerobatic aeroplane, uh, but certainly the role of observation. You can see with all the glazing, you get a good view out of it. All right, well, while we've been doing this interview, the Southern Knights with their four Harvards have been doing their demonstration. I do not apologise for the background noise. Aircraft noise is good noise. Lloyd, Alan, many thanks for your time, and we'll uh, watch you from below. Thank you, Micah. Yeah, thanks, Micah. Down here in the historic flight line, I'm in front of four beautiful Harvards, and I'm also in front of uh, Mr. Steve Deef uh, of the Southern Knights. Welcome. Thank you, Michael. And uh, tell us uh, the demonstration, the Southern Knights. What's the demonstration here involved? Uh, we have four World War II Harvards, which were built as a training aeroplane during the World War II for the uh, various air forces of the world. 
Uh, we use them as an aerobatic team, formation aerobatic team of four aeroplanes. We've got uh, five pilots that we choose from, basically to make sure we can always get four pilots for a display. We've been doing these displays now since 1996 when we formed the team for the Avalon Air Show in that year. And we now fly about six times a year at various air shows. Uh, the four aeroplanes have lots of noise, lots of smoke, and they're a crowd favourite everywhere we go. And uh, how much practice and training do you gentlemen have to keep up to uh, remain proficient? We do a fair bit of training. We've, having, done, having the same crew of people and having done it for a long time uh, is a positive benefit. The second positive benefit is our show is always the same show. We don't make changes to it. So instead of having to work out what we used to do, what we did, it, it's just the same show. So we'll always have a practice, like for this weekend here, we all arrived on Friday afternoon. We had a good briefing Friday afternoon. We went out for some practice loops, some practice rolling crosses, practice ripple rolls. We then did a full practice in the area, out in the practice area. Then we came back in here, we did a full practice over the field itself. Back down to the ground again for a good debriefing. And that had us back to standard again. So we flew again on um, Saturday and again today on Sunday. And the display has gone beautifully. The weather's been good. The aeroplanes have performed well. The pilots have all been good. We're very lucky in that all the pilots that fly in these teams regularly fly Harvards. We regularly fly a lot of World War II aircraft. So we're pretty proficient at what we do. And uh, we were watching a demonstration earlier on and it's just the same precise finesse of, of the formation flying that we've all come to uh, love with uh, the Southern Knights. What are some of the challenges you have with formation flying at these displays and in particular today? Challenges are usually due to weather actually. When it's nice and cool and there's no wind, it's reasonably easy. When you get hot, bumpy days, then it gets a little bit harder. But the fact that we have been doing this for a long time and practicing for a long time, we are getting better at it. No, that's good, and uh, it and it shows. It, it shows. We all uh, we all enjoy it, and uh, we we'll always look forward to it. Um, and uh, just give us a brief rundown of uh, the Harvards in a general history sense. Okay, the, the first Harvards were built in about 1936 uh, by North American Aviation in America. They then uh, went on to be built in uh, Canada as well. We had them in Australia as a Wirraway, which was an Australian-built aircraft, which uh, we have here today, a Wirraway flying around. And the Harvards actually did a lot of training right through the war. It was an initial trainer for a lot of the pilots in various countries in the world. And they still served right up until the early 90s in South Africa, it was the last place they served. So they've trained an awful lot of people. They built about 16,000 of them during the war and after the war. And it's been a very popular training aircraft for over 70 years. Excellent. And uh, please forgive us for the uh, aircraft noise in the background. We've got a Catalina and uh, we're away. Catalina or we're away. We're away, taxiing away, uh, waiting to go on the runway. It's uh, aircraft noise is good noise. It is good noise. Well, thank you very much for your time, uh, Steve. And uh, as always, we enjoy the, uh, watching the formations. You're welcome, Michael. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I hope you have a great day here today. No, we certainly will. Thank you. Thank you.
An important component of the Centenary of Military Air Show is the presence of various military aircraft types. HARS, the Historical Aircraft Restoration Society, have brought three of them down. And to discuss that more with me is Vice President of HARS, Maureen Massey. Maureen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Michael. Lovely to be here. Likewise, it is a good day. The sun's just come out and uh, lots of aircraft around. Everyone's happy. Indeed, it's starting to get very noisy. And for, uh, for those listening, uh, the background, that's the RAAF roulettes. They have six PC-9s currently doing their wonderful formation. Now, Maureen, just describe the aircraft that Haas have brought down here for the weekend. Sure, Michael. We bought three of our large aircrafts this weekend. We bought the Caribou, the Catalina, and the um, C-47, the military version of a DC-3. Yep, and uh, what, what's the significance of all three aircraft types uh, with the history of uh, the centenary? Well, the history is military on all three aircraft. Uh, the uh, C-47 was one of the last surviving um, C-47s that served in Vietnam and was stationed with Ardu. Uh, the Caribou was also very active in Vietnam and has a military record, and so does the Catalina, the original flying boat. So we are very strong on the military front where it comes to our fleet. Now, uh, as an organisation, what's the process, difficulties, or pleasure, for want of a better word, that you get out of uh, looking after these aircraft types? Well, Michael, we're all a voluntary organisation. We're not for profit. Uh, we all volunteer our times and our, uh, our time to sort of the preservation of Australian aviation history. And I think we're sort of aviation tragics. We have it in our blood and there's no getting it out. <laughs> But we enjoy taking our aircraft to different shows and different um, places right around Australia because quite often people can't make it to Sydney, where we're based. So we love to show our aircraft off. We're very, very proud of our heritage and uh, we just love to come to air shows and show them off. Now, you've got three of your aircraft types here. What are the logistics behind bringing free aircraft down, your volunteers and expenses and the like because uh, it, it would be quite an undertaking. It is indeed. Sometimes it's a logistic nightmare depending on how many uh, crew we have on each aircraft and if we include the Super Constellation uh, which uh, crews we take uh, 11 necessary crew on that one and uh, and so on. So the essential crew that you cater for but in a big show like this or even with Avalon uh, if we didn't get sponsorship for our fuel from the Air Force in this case or from major sponsors, it would make it impossible for us to go anywhere because, as you said, we're all volunteers and we rely heavily on support from the public and, uh, and some of our major sponsors. Shell Aviation are very, very good with us and uh, some of our major sponsors are very, very good. But without that support from the um, private sector, uh, we wouldn't be anywhere. So we're very, very fortunate and very proud and lucky to have those people on board. And uh, back at your home base in uh, Wollongong, uh, just describe uh, what Haas is about and what other aircraft types uh, come under the organisation. Okay, we have roughly 30 aircraft on our books. They're all housed at the Illawarra Regional Airport um, at our Haas facility, our main base. Uh, we have the biggest one, of course, is our Queen of the Skies, the Super Connie, commonly referred to as Connie. And our smallest one is a Tiger Moth and a Chipmunk. So we have everything in between. We have two Caribous, two C-47s, we have one Catalina, we have the original um, Drover, de Havilland Drover, which was the Flying Doctor. Um, we have uh, all in between that. We have a DC-4 under construction or, or um, uh, down there at Haas, and we have many things in between. So it's well worth a visit down to the Illawarra and visit the museum. At present we are closed to the public, but we're hoping to open again by the end of the year. We're going through our third stage of construction, 
and that includes fire compliance. So it's a safety issue for the public uh, that we've closed until that's all compliant and we open again. So. Now, for those listening, they're interested, they want to get involved, they want to help out, so they just want to learn a bit more. Where can they find the info? Info on the web, www.hars.org.au. Go on the website, have a look at us, and we'll certainly advertise it when we open our doors again, and everybody's welcome. We have a great uh, great crew, we have a great list of aircraft, we have a great history, we have a library, we have the de Havilland collection of, of library uh, books there and drawings, and they go right back to 1927. So I think that's invaluable. So we do encourage people, particularly young people, come along and learn from these old people. <laughs> Dad's army, as they call us, quite friendly, but yes, please do come on down to the Illawarra. Oh, we're all we're all young at heart. <laughs> all right, well, many thanks for your time, uh, Maureen, and uh, it's been a pleasure watching uh, the aircraft demonstrate their stuff. Thank you very much, Mark. Standing underneath the right wing and engine off a Caribou A4210, the serial number. And I'm here with Robert St. John, who's a volunteer with the Historical Aircraft Restoration Society, HARS, based down in Albion Park. Bob, welcome. Oh, thanks very much for having me. Now, tell us about this aircraft. Okay, this airplane came from uh, De Havilland Factory in, uh, uh, I think it was about June 1964, went to Richmond. Um, in March 65, uh, I was tasked to take it up from Richmond to, uh, to Vung Tau because we'd uh, crashed a couple and they were run out of aeroplanes. Uh, the trip itself was enormously long. The longest leg we had was uh, 13 hours and 40 minutes from Cocos Island to Butterworth and that uh, was a long way without an autopilot and we were taken in turns just to fly and have a rest. Um, it re- only remained in uh, Vung Tau for 18 months. It itself uh, fell down a hole at a place called Dalat and the undercarriage came off. Uh, they repaired it but it wouldn't fly correctly so they sent it back home, back home and uh, it spent some time down at Ardu getting fixed. Uh, it spent the rest of its life mostly in 38 Squadron and uh, in 2009 it was retired from the Air Force. We were lucky to get uh, to put in a bid for for it, and we managed to get not only one, but we got two. We also have number two thirty four, and I look after these aeroplanes. I'm the engineering coordinator for them. I was a flight engineer on them in uh, in uh, Vietnam, and I was a flight engineer on them till the end of '68 when I joined Thirty Seventh Squadron. But uh, the aeroplane, to me, I started my flying career on it, and I'm now 72, and I'm ending my career on it. And, and you're a veteran yourself, yep. uh, back with the affectionately known Wallaby Airlines. Um, what does the Caribou mean to you as a veteran? I think my time on the Caribou in Vietnam uh, was, was something that I, I look back on, I think, that aeroplane saved my life on a number of occasions. And not only a number of occasions, but every time we went out somewhere, um, 
it always brought us back. You know, I had a couple of bad engine failures, uh, mainly through gunfire, and uh, uh, we managed to get the aeroplane back, or the aeroplane managed to get us back. It was a, just a superb aeroplane, and great for the job it was tasked for. Yep, and we're here to celebrate the centenary of military aviation here in Point Cork. Uh, what, what place does this aircraft have in that centenary history? Well, you've only got to, you've only got to ask anyone that wanders past this aeroplane who's an ex-Raffi, and they'll say, that's the best aeroplane I ever flew on, or that's the best aeroplane I ever worked on. And you'll find it, someone will come up, I, you know, I've jumped out of this aeroplane ten times. It's a fabulous aeroplane. I was in, I was in, uh, I was in SAS for four years. I, I flew in this and jumped night jumps. And, what a fabulous aeroplane. And everyone's so sorry that I had to leave the Air Force. And I understand why, because it was the last aeroplane that, that they had in the Air Force, in the RAF, that actually used a petrol as opposed to kerosene. And, of course, the RAF having to place supplies of petrol around at each of their bases, they could cut all that out by failing, uh, by, uh, by, by leaving the aeroplane and letting it, uh, letting it retire. Unfortunately, the, um, we've got two that we picked up in 2011 from Oki, and uh, much to my dismay and, and, and horror, there's still five aeroplanes sitting there rotting away in the weeds. I'd love to have them, you know, I really would love to have them. Uh, it'd be wonderful to have a whole squadron of these things come down to a show like this, and I guarantee the people who come around here that are ex-Air Force just love it, you know, they think it's the best aeroplane on earth. And it's fair to say that nothing can really re replace a caribou, can it? The only thing that can replace a caribou is another caribou. You can't do any better than that. Now, Haas have not one but two. What is the process involved with its upkeep and what does Haas need to keep them going? I'm glad you asked me that question. We, um, we got two aeroplanes and the Minister said uh, and sufficient spares to fly them for the next 20 years. Well, the spares that I've got go into three and a half standard cupboards. Um, what we've got now is to scrimp and save. We've got a lot of engines, <coughs> excuse me, but we've got a lot of engines, but only four of them are zero timed. In other words, they've been overhauled. The rest of them are all unserviceable. We've got six propellers, two are serviceable, uh, four aren't. Um, spares. We've got to the stage now we, where we're having to manufacture our own spares because there's just not the spares available. And we're lucky at Haas because we have people that have the expertise to do those spares. You know, I'm, I, I do a lot of sheet metal work on a couple of other projects that I, I like to do, but um, on this, I do all the sheet metal repair. I've got guys that make up new brackets. I've got, we, we have to go and buy seals. You know, we changed an engine. This particular engine here, uh, last year, because uh, the one that was on there had a, had a, a, a failure of one of the cylinders, and uh, we had a brand new engine, stuck it on there. We didn't have any seals. It cost me $6,000 to buy seals just to put the engine on. Seals and gaskets, that's what we don't have, and that's why we, we like to come to here. We ask for a donation to go on board to have a look, because we don't have... Um, any government uh, money comes to us, we either do it by voluntary donations, by us working voluntarily, and of course we've got sponsors, and uh, that we need those sponsors. Yep, and uh, for those listening from overseas or not well acquainted, 
Describe Wallaby Airlines. Okay, Wallaby Airlines was something that started in Vietnam. Um, I, when I first went to Vietnam, the, the, the group of six aeroplanes was called RAF Transport Flight Vietnam. Uh, in 1966, they started up 35 Squadron, and that took over from RAF Transport Flight Vietnam. The, the term Wallaby Airlines stuck to 35 Squadron because what we used to do when I was up there, our call sign was Wallaby. So um, even in RAF Transport Flight, our, our call sign was Wallaby. We were Wallaby 01, 02, etc. You know. So anywhere you'd, you'd be listening on the on the radio, you'd hear a Wallaby coming up, and it was an Australian voice, you know, I'm not an American voice, and uh, you'd get this uh, oh Wallaby zero two, and uh, everyone used to say you'd go into an outpost somewhere, way out in the uh, in the Laotian border there area there, and you'd say if you want something done, call a Wallaby, and that's how Wallaby got its name, Wallaby Airlines, and that's why it's got the big orange kangaroo on the tail. Excellent. No, it's a it's a beautiful aircraft. It flies beautifully, and we love it. So, Bob, thank you very much for your time. Oh, thanks for having me, and thanks for letting me have a chat about it. I'm, I'm as I said, I'm 72, and I'm still wrapped in it. it. It's our pleasure, and this is our audience love hearing this stuff. And I should say, on behalf of my parents as well, thank you for your <laughs> service uh, to Vietnam, considering they're refugees. So, uh, okay. many thanks, Bob. Okay, thanks very much. Bye now. Warren Gengos, uh, one of the pilots on the Catalina. Warren, welcome. Thank you very much. Now describe describe the Catalina pretty much uh, for the audience. Well the Catalina was designed in about 1934 so at the beginning of the Second World War it was a fairly old aeroplane but it did operate right throughout the war. Our particular one was made in 1945 and saw service right throughout the Pacific uh, as far as Japan, Guam, uh, Okinawa, uh, before the war came to an end. They were designed as a very long-range patrol boat and uh, their feature was that they could stay aloft for 25, 27 hours. Now you're a crew member on the Catalina. Uh, just tell us a bit about your background and how you've uh, got to that position. Well I was very lucky when I was a young man uh, uh, just uh, uh, qualified as a commercial pilot I was given the opportunity of, of uh, flying a Catalina for a, uh, an American corporation between Darwin and Westerian. And so for one year I, uh, I flew that Catalina back and forth uh, from Darwin to Westerian, landing in, in the rivers of, uh, of uh, Westerian. And uh, then I, uh, when that Catalina's job was done, I went back to normal flying and I've been uh, in uh, a whole lot of roles in flying training, in uh, charter, uh, I worked for CASA for some years uh, and uh, for the last 10 years I've been in Wollongong and uh, in Wollongong is the Historical Aircraft Restoration Society where that aircraft uh, is based and just after I arrived in Wollongong the museum bought the aircraft and flew it out from uh, Portugal and they asked me to do their check and training so I've been flying on the aeroplane ever since. And uh, how does the as an aircraft, how does the Catalina handle? 
Well, it's slow and it's uh, not very manoeuvrable. It's, uh, it's uh, reasonably difficult to fly. Um, it has a mind of its own. It does its own thing. Uh, even in cruise, you can see it wallowing all around the sky. However, having said that, we love it. And we've watched from the ground just then your demonstration of the Catalina in the air, very beautiful by the way. Uh, just describe the uh, demonstration that you've had to do uh, above us here at the air show. Well, of course, it's not an aerobatic aeroplane, so what we're limited to do is uh, do a run down uh, the display line for the people, uh, do a, a turn at the other end and come back again. We also, during that uh, session, we put the floats down to show the, the crowd uh, what happens when we're coming into land. The floats come uh, down from the wingtips electronically. Uh, and they're, uh, they're a fairly unique feature of a Catalina because most uh, seaplanes have fixed floats under the wings. Uh, we put them down for a run down the runway and then we raised them up again electrically and then came round and landed. That's all we can do. And that noise you can hear in the background is the RAAF Roulette Formation Team, that's six PC9s. Now after the air show concludes, uh, all three of you, the uh, C-47, DC-3, uh, the Caribou and the uh, Catalina go back to Wollongong, who will get there first? Uh, I think probably uh, the DC-3 is easily the fastest and we're easily the slowest. So if we're all left together, we'll, we'll get back there last. But I think we're about to leave uh, in another 15, 20 minutes or so, so we might, uh, might beat the others back, who knows? And, and, and out of curiosity, how long will it take you to get back to well, uh, Wollongong? Well, it took us uh, four hours 20 to come down and we had a tailwind. Um, today we might take probably the, that long or a little longer to go back. Excellent. Well, Warren, many thanks for your time and uh, you enjoy the rest of the weekend. Thank you very much. A pleasure. You might have seen the Red Baron performing daring aerobatic feats over Sydney's magnificent beaches. Now it's time for you to see the world from the Red Baron's point of view. Whoa, probably upside down. Go to redbaron.com.au to find out more about scenic tours and aerobatic flights with the Red Baron. You could fly in the Pitt's special open cockpit biplane, the Red Bull stunt plane, or the new Gippsland Air Van. To find out more or to book your flight, phone 97910643 or go to redbaron.com.au. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Sohoi 22. Right, OK. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm -hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. <laughs> Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped. You've got leg restraints on. You're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Uh, also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. 
just taking me on the trip of our lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Voices in Your Head.com. Well, we're here to talk with uh, you guys uh, yeah. okay. at Wings Over Illawarra about uh, the adventure flying that we have uh, out of here. We conduct adventure flying uh, on the L39, a single engine uh, turbofan primary jet trainer and that jet uh, out over the coast we can perform aerobatics and uh, introduce people to a high g environment that they've never experienced before so walking around on earth at 1g what's it like to go out and pull g's in an aircraft and you can do that with top gun australia uh, here in wollongong convenient to sydney and the surrounding area by getting a hold of the, the folks at Top Gun, the Top Gun website at uh, www.topgunaustralia.com. Adventure Flying Grant uh, in Australia, we're lucky that we have a country uh, where uh, we have uh, uh, warbirds that can uh, be licensed for adventure flying. Uh, there are not many countries in the world that allow for that. So if you were living in a country and you wanted to experience high-G flight, you'd either have to be in the military or come to a country like Australia, which offers adventure flying, uh, where you can pay to have somebody take you up. And the benefit or the bonus to flying with Top Gun Australia is you get to fly with ex-military, people who've trained, flown fighters in the Air Force or the Navy or the Marines, who are here to introduce you to uh, high-G flight in a jet, the same jets that we trained on in the Air Force or the Navy or the Marines uh, when we earned our wings. How long has Top Gun Australia been uh, in operation, do you know? Uh, before I joined, uh, probably seven years, so this is probably its eighth year of, uh, of existence. Uh, and started, I believe, uh, if I have the history right, I believe it started in or around the Bankstown area. Moved to Hobart and incorporated now the L-39 here out of uh, Wollongong into the fold. The L-39 came to Wollongong from Camden. Uh, Wollongong's advantage being a longer airfield okay. that the jet likes. And was the L-39 the first aircraft that Top Gun had? Do you know what they uh, started with? There's a Jet Provost that's in Hobart, and I believe it was on the Jet Provost, and prior to that a Nanchang, a radial uh, engine prop. So that radial prop, uh, Chinese-built, yep. under license from the Russians uh, in Australia, the Nanchang, you won't find ex-U.S. military hardware sold outside or even available outside the U.S. Defense Forces or those countries they uh, supply to, Australia being one of them, the F-18s. They do not on-sell U.S. defense property for adventure flying. Mm -hmm. So we're lucky in the way that either the Chinese, Russian-built, or this L-39 Czech-built aircraft is here, and we can use it under the Adventure Flying banner to allow people to experience high-G flight. Go to the website, and there you'll see the aircraft we operate, 
the Nanchang, the JP5, the Albatross, the L39. You'll see the bases we operate from, Hobart, Wollongong. You'll see a list of all the personnel involved and the background on all those people. And again, what I want to emphasize to your listeners is the background is they're all ex-military types who are used for the adventure flying that people uh, would seek. You're actually getting somebody who's trained, operated, and flown, trained for combat, and either flown in combat or trained for combat. Well, that's a great segue. Let's shift gears. John, you've got an accent that's not from around here, and you've got on your badge there that uh, Captain USAF and a call sign of Viper. John, talk to us about your uh, military career. Fine, Grant. Uh, I started out uh, in the Air Force in the early 80s during the Reagan buildup and uh, went from the F-4 to the A-10 and have flown out of the Philippines in the F-4, the A-10 in Louisiana, and my last uh, assignment was as an exchange officer with the French Air Force at the uh, French Air Force uh, College in uh, Salon de Provence, France. So, dual-rated pilot-navigator and bilingual uh, French-English at their academy teaching their cadets uh, ab initio on the Cap-10, solo on the uh, Fuga Magistère, which has been uh, since replaced by the turboprop, the uh, the, uh, Tucano. The French uh, got off the Brazilians to replace the jet doing some teaching in the classroom as well. So flying, teaching, looking after cadets. Awesome. The uh, F-4, uh, what was it like? What kind of uh, missions were you doing in that? Because uh, that was towards the end of the F-4's life in the 80s. The early 80s, we still had, we uh, used the F-4. I was in air-to-ground squadron. The F-4, we sat, or we didn't sit, but we had uh, nuclear strike capability. So you would certify... Uh, uh, on the F-4 as a crew to deliver the uh, uh, B-61, which is a uh, 10 kiloton nuclear weapon, uh, into uh, a location, well, would have been uh, downtown Pyongyang, one of the most heavily defended uh, cities in, uh, on the planet for AAA. Yeah. Yeah. So would that, and that would, what kind of uh, maneuvering would that have been? Would that have been a come up and then pull up and do a lob? A low angle, low drag, or a, uh, yeah, you come up and do a radar designation either to a radar show target or an offset target and use the F-4 radar to designate the uh, target area. And you would do a uh, uh, pull-up maneuver and the bomb or the weapon would release uh, off the uh, jet and free fall in a parachute as the, uh, as the F-4 made its escape. Uh, hopefully far enough away by the time it went off that it didn't melt the uh, trailing edge of the flap <laughs> yeah. on the aircraft. You flew the F-4 out of the Philippines for a while, and then what was the reason for the transition to the A-10? Was that just a, an Air Force posting? or That was the uh, third, I'll tell you, that was the third tech fighter squadron, the Peugeots, with the third tech fighter wing at Clark Air Base in the Philippines in 1984. And the reason for the transfer, the change in posting, Grant, I was selected for pilot training. So my time in the F-4 was as a backseater or a weapon Whip. systems officer, a WIZO. WIZO. Yep. Uh, or Goose as he's... Uh, <laughs> if he was in an F-14. Uh, if he was a side seater in an F-14, that's right. So uh, selected for pilot training uh, less than 
5% of the uh, rated uh, officers rated in the Air Force as pilots are a dual rated pilot navigator. So originally I came in the Air Force and went to NAV school and then out of NAV school went to the F4, posted to the Philippines and out of the Philippines was selected for pilot training. Yep. And so that's when they moved you over to, did, you weren't pilot of the F4, you, that's when they moved you to the A10? That's right, now the pilot training was uh, given an assignment to the 23rd Tech Fighter Wing, the uh, 76th Tech Fighter Squadron, the Vanguards in England Air Force Base, Louisiana. Uh, both those, Clark and England Air Force Base, are now closed. Clark Air Force Base uh, later in uh, the uh, oh, yeah, 80s, early 90s, I think. Yep. Uh, Mount Pinabutu, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, the volcano closed the airfield with volcanic ash, and they never uh, renewed the lease on the airfield. Yep. Uh, both the naval base and the air base, uh, they gave back the leases to the Filipinos, yep. the U.S. Uh, out of pilot training, uh, went to the A-10 and uh, converted to the A-10 uh, to the Tucson Air Force Base, uh, or Tucson, Arizona, Davis-Montham Air Force Base, then to England Air Force Base as an operational A-10 pilot for three, three and a half years. And uh, so a lot of low and slow and close air support flying there. That's uh, How was the A-10 to, to handle? The A-10 is a very maneuverable aircraft, and you spend your whole time at low altitude pulling Gs, uh, orbiting uh, or attacking uh, once you got your uh, briefing from the Ford Air Controller. Your weapons delivery included strafe, low-angle dive bomb, low-angle low-drag, and a 15-degree pop-up weapons delivery, all from low altitude in what would have been a uh, high-threat environment at the time. The A-10 eventually going to war. Uh, the squadron deployed three months after I rotated out in the uh, in mid-'90s to uh, Saudi Arabia and saw involvement in the first Gulf War, but that had changed the role of the A-10. Their baptism of fire was in a low-threat environment, not the high-threat Warsaw Pack uh, in that we train for is now a, a low threat environment where small arms AAA uh, and you had to stay out of that uh, envelope so you you could bomb with impunity from higher altitude and the introduction then of uh, precision guided weapons and GPS to the aircraft it's a completely different aircraft today the A10C to the A10A when I flew it. Uh, thanks to the uh, introduction of uh, fire and forget, launch and leave technology. Yep. Now the A10, I've heard the story that if you uh, f- if you're uh, firing that gun, it slows you right down. Uh, the recoil action of the gun can uh, can take a few knots off your airspeed. Is that correct? Those are all the fast jet drivers who are jealous about the A10. And <laughs> <laughs> don't believe any of that. But I will tell you, Grant, that uh, every sense in your body uh, knows that that gun's going off. <laughs> and that means even if an oxygen mask on, sitting there on the uh, inside the uh, canopy, uh, flying the uh, the warthog, you can hear it, smell it, taste it, feel it, see it. All of your senses know that gun's going off. <laughs> Even with an oxygen mask on, you can almost taste the cordite burning. Wow. That's intense. Now, it's interesting you talk about the A-10 because I know they've been deployed to uh, Fort Smith up in Arkansas for the Air National Guard, and uh, I spent a lot of time in Arkansas, so it's uh, a shame that they're going to be retired. They're talking about retiring the A-10 now. So, uh, I've heard that recently too, Steve, that the A-10 will be uh, withdrawn from service. I don't know if it's uh, in the next couple of years, but uh, the time I was flying the A-10 in the uh, early 90s, 90, 90, or 
from 87 to 90, there were 750 cockpits available after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the drawdown of the Air Force, uh, the breakup of the Warsaw Pact, there were 250 uh, cockpits available. So it went from 750 during the time I flew it to 250 while I was on exchange to the French Air Force. That's a big step down. It certainly is. Now, coming across here and flying, talking of Warsaw Pact, of course, you know, you're flying the L-39 here. Was that a big transition to come across and go over to the other side, I guess, and fly aircraft from the other side of the fence? You uh, you certainly know uh, the right questions to ask because uh, as a fighter pilot uh, in the Air Force, uh, all you could think about uh, and all you were trained, uh, that's a target. That's something you shoot. That's something you kill. Uh, anything Russian was uh, a mort. That's what you went out uh, every day and looked for. And now to... Uh, close the canopy and see uh, Russian uh, inscription on some of the instruments still uh, even though if they're disused in the, in the L-39 it's, uh, it's almost like, uh, well wait a minute this isn't supposed to happen like this, you're not supposed to be here, you're not uh, this is, you know this is what you're supposed to take away from them not, <clears throat> but you know the Cold War is over now, the uh, the communism is dead in, in a sense, uh, and uh, those aircraft are on the market for sale. And as we've talked about earlier, there's no sale of for, except for foreign military sales of U.S. Uh, assets. So if you're going to fly anything like this as a primary jet trainer and get into one, you're going to have to do it through adventure flying. And undoubtedly, it's going to be an ex-communist Warsaw Pact, ex-communist machine. This one built in Czechoslovakia. This L-39, this in Wollongong, this particular serial number, I believe, was a factory demo, a factory demonstrator. It's never seen uh, service with an Air Force. So it's come to us from the factory as a demonstrator. It's flown, I don't know, various places in Europe before it came here. And all the weapon systems on it are there. Uh, the only people I believe still using it today as a weapon system, when you turn on CNN and watch what's happening in Syria, you sometimes see aircraft dropping bombs or firing a gun. That's the L-39 attacking uh, in, uh, from the Syrian Air Force. Grant and I have both had the privilege of riding in uh, not this particular L-39, but another adventure flight operator down uh, in Victoria, and uh, it's a fantastic experience for people like us. And Grant's a hot air balloon pilot, I'm a Cessna driver, so it's a, it's a huge thing for us, and I guess for people who are not pilots at all, it just must just be an amazing thing, and uh, for yourself with so much military experience, a good opportunity for you to you know, show some of the things that taxpayers' dollars have paid for in terms of training and skill. And... Personally, and you can probably relate to this as well, Steve, Grant, the uh, 20 years that, I was, uh, that I've been here that I haven't uh, put on a flight suit, to put on a flight suit again and get back into a jet and fly a jet for the first time last year, you think to yourself, well, wait a minute, I'm strapping this thing on, what's it going to be like? And all of a sudden you find you're back in something, this is what you were trained to do. Yeah. It's no different 20 years later than it was when you finished pilot training. And it's just like, well, this is what I was trained for. This is what I was trained to do. This is what uh, is part of me. This is what flows through my blood. 
Yeah, we often talk about uh, aviation getting into your blood in, in any form. You can get altitude in any way you like, but certainly uh, to be a military fast jet pilot is something unique in itself. And not a lot of us, plenty of us want to do it, but not all of us get to do it. So it uh, must be a great thing. I guess the saying is it's like uh, riding a bike, you never forget. Yeah, and also to get you to relate to the experience and your listeners to relate to what it is like, uh, maybe some of you listening out there uh, thinking about joining the military, you first got to pass the medical. And then after you pass the medical, uh, you've got to have a slot available. So you've got to have the aptitude. And all that's all the military looks for is, does this person have the aptitude to perform this role? And yeah, as long as the slot's available in the RAAF or the USAF or the Marine Corps, the Navy, you can pass the medical, you've got the aptitude, They'll give you the training, and it's the best training in the world. Okay, John Fisher, thank you very much for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time. Thanks very much, and all your listeners, thank you very much. And welcome back, folks. I tell you what, Grant, uh, John Fisher, an interesting guy and a very serious fellow. We should mention that uh, you can find the website to Top Gun Adventure Flights where he works at topgunaustralia.com. And uh, I'm sure John and uh, all his uh, colleagues down there would uh, love to have you come down and do an adventure flight. In fact, Grant, I think if we'd hang around much longer and it wasn't, you know, about 300 knots of wind uh, that day, (laughs) perhaps we might have got a flight as well. Uh, Yeah, I I think they would have taken the money and put us in the air. No problem at all, mate. But uh, yeah, big thanks to Barry Moore for giving us the tip to go down and chat with the guys. Yeah, absolutely. Well done, mate. Now, um, I tell you what, uh, winds over Illawarra. Let me paint a picture now. I'm not exactly a small guy, and it was blowing me sidewards. In fact, uh, Micah and I were walking around trying to do some video work, and uh, Micah would have to set the camera up on the tripod, and then I'd have to sort of um, hold Micah in place so he didn't blow away. Nice one. I actually wound up working as a uh, windbreak to stop the uh uh, camera rocking around on the tripod for Steve and Pam. I'd stand upwind and move around as he panned. <laughs> yeah, well, see, so you, you know, piece of, the professional piece of your windbreak duties usually come to me, but, uh, you know. <laughs> well, you know, I just uh, pretended to be you for a bit. Okay, and uh, it's Kathy, I'll tell you what, uh, Kingsley just, um, was he still dizzy when he was talking to you? I mean, I think I'd be dizzy for about six months after doing about 3,000 barrel rolls. No, I wouldn't have said he was dizzy. <laughs> he was quite grounded. Yes, he sounds like a very uh, very calm and measured individual. Yeah, he's a nice guy. He's an air traffic controller in Melbourne. Oh, you should have got some dirt on ATC Ben while you were talking to him. Oh, I yeah. did, but it's not for the podcast. Oh, really? Oh, I can't say that on air. <laughs> what happens on the interview stays on the interview or something That's like right. that. That's <laughs> right. What happens oh. on the, on the vib, what is it, that thing you gave me to record? On the Zoom. <laughs> Zoom. That's right. <laughs> Speaking to the Zoom, people. <laughs> Lean a little closer. Absolutely. All right. Now, let's get into some shout-outs. Um, we've got quite a few uh, at the moment. Um, now, our good friend Evan Shue, who, uh, you know, has been a ground crew for Grant. Evan's wanted to uh, send us a shout-out to his friend Shane Simpson, who uh, recently completed his first solo. Awesome work. Yay. Yeah. Woo-hoo. Uh, thank you, studio audience. Well yeah. Shane. But yeah, well done to Shane. Cessna 152 at Moorabbin. On you, mate. Uh, sorry, it's taken a while to get this. Uh, it was somewhere back in, I think, June, and uh, we finally got around to recording the um, the episode. So, yeah, Evan let us know back in June, and we popped the message into our show notes. And uh, finally, yay, next episode we can finally say, congrats, Shane. Well done, dude. On you, well done. And uh, while we're giving congratulations out, we should uh, offer congratulations to our, our good friend, our very own Anthony Crichton-Brown and his wife Prudence on the successful delivery of their firstborn son. Well done. Yeah, firstborn. 
firstborn son, Andrew, I believe, was the name for the young one. I think that's the name he put up there on Facebook. I hope that's right. That's what I wrote in the show notes. So, if well, you know, Anthony, if you haven't named him Andrew, I think you should now, just so it fits in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Your name, not Andrew Steve. Turbo Crichton Brown. There you go. That must be a, that must be an in Qantas joke. I think I still don't understand it. <laughs> So well done, Anthony, and well done, Prudence, and uh, good to see that uh, everyone is uh, all healthy and happy there. And, um, yeah, that's that's very, very good news. Now, get back to the podcasting, mate. You know, all these projects you and I talk about, we, we need to probably do some of them at some point. So no more no more delivering any more children to you. You've given us at least one interview, I think. Grant, is that, is that too much to ask? I think that's pretty good, mate. I think that's pretty much spot on. I'm nothing if not reasonable. Yeah, totally. And interesting that uh, Anthony uh, recently um, transitioned from uh, Boeing aircraft through to um, Airbus aircraft uh, in his job as a professional airline pilot and another one of our friends is about to do exactly the same. I think we'll mention it here because Owen Zupp has put it up on Facebook so the whole world knows. He's moving across uh, over to the dark side, I suppose. He's moving across to uh, to Airbus and taking command. That's great. He's uh, going to be a left-seater on the A320. So uh, just as Anthony Crichton-Brown did uh, a little while ago, moving from the 767 to the A320, uh, Owen's going to go from the 737 to the A320 himself and the command rating. I think that's uh, I think that's wonderful mate well done yeah awesome work Owen and uh, Owen's just released a new blog as if he's not uh, busy enough he's recently <laughs> uh, released a, a second book uh, 50 more tales of flight which you can find on amazon.com Grant will pop a link to that in the show notes and uh, we'll also put a link to his new website thepilotsblog.com and uh, already getting a lot a lot a lot of traffic so he's uh, pretty happy about that is he going to do a third book yeah. it's pretty good I've been reading the second one there's a great um, have you read it you guys yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah I love the bit where he's talking about the GP flying out across the ocean to the little island. Yes, an early days GPS, yeah. I didn't know if he was going to make it. <laughs> no, it's a great book. I sat there riveted with iPhone in hand on Kindle that you downloaded for me, Grant. There you go. There you go. That's how I read my copy on, on my phone with the Kindle software. It's, uh, it's I highly recommend it, 50 More Tales of Flight. And uh, if you haven't already read 50 Tales of Flight, go get that one too. They work really well together. Oh, the other one I loved was um, when he talked about his mother's first boyfriend who didn't come back oh, from the war. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I cried. I was sitting in a cafe in Wood End having a hot chocolate with a marshmallow in it. <laughs> so you're looking into a red wine. Thing. And next thing I know, I'm in tears. I'm like, good one, Owen. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's good. He's a very he's a, the enthusiasm and the passion Owen puts into his writing is it's just fantastic. I really love reading his stuff. And uh, as to the question of whether he's going to put out another book, if I know Owen uh, well enough, and I'd like to think I know him pretty well these days, he's probably got about two dozen books he's writing at the same time, along with all these uh, <laughs> aviation articles. But uh, yeah, he's actually um, yeah he's interviewed for the new job. He's uh, you know he's uh, he's taken it. And uh, as we speak, uh, probably by the time this podcast is uh, going to air, I'd say he's probably somewhere over in Europe, uh, starting on his A320 type rating. So. Uh, Good luck to Owen, and uh, I'm sure he'll do a fantastic job over there at his new airline. All right, Mikey, you've got a shout-out as well. I do, I do. I'd uh, like to wish uh, my friends over at the South Australian Aviation Museum uh, their 30th anniversary recently. They've uh, had very humble beginnings uh, 30 years ago, starting with uh, one exhibit at the presentation. They described how they brought it over from Melbourne. They welded it to a trailer and... uh, (laughs) <laughs> the police pulled them over en route, not to tell them about their load, but to ask what the aircraft was. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's so, my kind of copper. Uh, they, they, plane they, spotters. Plane spotters, indeed. Uh, a no, plane they, on the back of a truck, anyway. That's, that's, 
that's it. That's it. They all come out in the woodwork uh, when you're out in the open. So they've uh, they've moved from venue to venue, and now they're at their uh, really uh, really nice uh, museum venue in Port Adelaide, which is a historic precinct of uh, Adelaide, 15 minutes out of town. It's right next to a railway museum. Um, and also they've got a lot of exhibits there, not just for South Australian aviation, but Australian aviation in general, representing our first uh, astronaut, Andy Thomas, uh, local John Johansson, flew around the world twice in a home-built aeroplane. Just all sorts of little Australian stories like that. So I want to give a shout-out to them, of course. Excellent. Thanks for that. No, it sounds great. And, of course, you must be in heaven. You've got a railway museum on one side and you've got an aircraft museum on the other. Well, it's the railway line just passes right next to the museum. So when the railway museum run trains, they can just drop me off and I can walk into the aviation museum. It's great. Happy, happy. Mm. So why do they transport the aeroplane on a truck instead of putting it on the train? It it was in several pieces and... And, and, and they weren't near that close to a train line in, in their initial building, but uh, that's all. That's all great. And we've got one last thing to say. Woohoo! For and it's very special to my heart. <sighs> Oz Runways is going to do an Android version. Yay! Boy, it's, somebody must have uh, hijacked Baz and uh, kidnapped him and taken him away to some faraway land. Is, is Baz Chef is aware that uh, they're finally going droid over there at Oz Runways? Uh, look, it's all those subliminal suggestions I've been making to him. You know, like, hey, Baz, how's it going? Do a droid. Hey, you know, how's the aircraft going? Do a droid. You know, I'm I just- think it was like, please, Baz, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, yeah, everyone's doing a droid at the moment, it seems. So I'm a very happy boy. I don't have to get a bloody eye thing to go and run an aviation software because everyone's doing droid now. All the important ones are. I'm very happy because you know uh, here in Australia you've got Avplan or you've got Oz Runways and Avplan already have their um, initial Android version out and now you've got Oz Runways as well so yay vindication all my years of being a droid head have come through there you go now Oz Runways uh, our fantastic major sponsor here at Playing Crazy Down Under and uh, we're very grateful for their support now don't get too excited yet uh, Android users um, now we were recording this in late July 2014 uh, it, it hasn't been released quite yet but if you'd like to know where they're up to they're actually calling it Project Marvin so if you're into the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that'll make a lot of sense to you. And uh, you can find out uh, more about what they're doing uh, with regards to their upcoming Android release at android.ozrunways.com. So uh, good news for all you Droid users out there. You know, Grant, I could probably even dust off my geriatric old Galaxy tab and see if it will use it. Uh, No, not a chance. It's got to be version 4 or higher, possibly KitKat or higher. Oh, well, there you go. In that case, um, I'll just stick with my my iPad. What did he just say? I have no idea. I don't know how this got into talking about confectionery, but you know how these droid people, how they roll. <laughs> well, you know, you know how iOS eight breaks things. Well, yeah, you got to have the latest version. This is this is how Android. Uh, they use a. Uh, this is version K of the operating system, thus KitKat. Ah, of course. You know, some yes. people would call it Kilo, but hey, that's just me. Yeah, well, that's the aviation people trying to get their hands on it. Anyhow, great news. Both major developers uh, producing Android versions, and yay, team! Thanks, Bass. I'm really happy. Cool. And I'd just like to offer one more shout-out to our, uh, our hard-working uh, video uh, production guy, Stephen Pam, who's been working flat out. I mean, really doing a lot of really hard work on our Tyab uh, Airshow DVD. It is uh, running a little bit longer. It's been quite an education for us, and we really want to uh, thank the uh, Peninsula Aero Club for their indulgence while we uh, get sort through, I reckon, at least 20 hours of footage to make uh, it one Actually, 30, mate. Over 30 hours oh, of footage, go. from including the two onboard GoPros from the F-18, the HUD camera from the F-18, the 
onboard footage from the trainers, the onboard footage from Chris Baru, the onboard footage from Paul Bennett, and uh, multiple cameras on the ground. Uh, marathon effort, lots of work. We even brought a second video editor in to help out with some of the extras to get them done. This DVD is going to kick butt. Uh, some of the extras are just to die for. So uh, we're hoping everyone appreciates and that it's worth the wait. The feedback so far from the uh, senior folks at the Peninsula Aero Club is that they're quite impressed uh, with some of the segments. Yeah, and it's, it's really good. And that extra uh, editor, in fact, was uh, Carl von Mueller. So uh, we really appreciate him. Uh, Broken Wings is his, his project. And uh, uh, some of the footage that uh, he uh, donated to the video is just sensational. Some uh, some uh, slow motion footage there, which we know everybody will appreciate. So uh, yeah, if you haven't uh, pre-ordered your copy yet, uh, drop them a line down there at the Peninsula Aero Club down there at uh, Tyab Airport. And uh, as we record this, I, I notice uh, just as we're recording, actually, Grant, that uh, Stephen Pam has sent us an email saying that uh, he's about to start the final mastering of it. So, uh, yeah, it's getting close. It's getting close. I'm really excited to uh, finally get it out there. So uh, well, if you're wondering what's been killing off the podcast, well, basically, this has been it. <laughs> <laughs> this is this has contributed. This plus our day jobs. But, hey, folks, we're getting there. Yay. It'll, I, I think this episode will be out at about the same time as the disc. But anyhow, yes. yay. All right, fantastic. And, Grant, we're heading up to Sydney shortly to uh, go and have a look at uh, a new Airbus. That's right, mate. We get to go and play with the A350. And uh, we'll have more on that once it comes. Just as ever, keep an eye on our uh, feeds, Facebook, Twitter, that kind of stuff, our own personal feeds as well. And uh, you'll get to see what we're up to. Uh, but yes, some, uh, so the A350 coming to town and Sydney and uh, we get to go and ha- hang out with them. Fantastic. Okay, Michael, well, we better let you go standing up there under the approach path there at uh, Bankstown. Uh, where, what, you know, what projects have we got lined up for you? Anything? That's a good question. Actually, There's you normally line up some end. projects for us. So uh, we might send you up uh, in your job, you get up to some uh, lovely remote parts of Australia. I'm sure we'll have to think of some uh, some ideas for more projects for you. I have a list and I'll attend to that list once the list from my house gets attended to. <laughs> it's the house that ate your fun. But anyhow, it's a good investment for the future, mate. That's what they keep telling me. That's it. That's it. Your home is your castle. <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, mate, fantastic work on that uh, on that package there from the Centenary of Military uh, Aviation Air Show. And uh, again, thanks for your indulgence because we've had that sitting in the, uh, <laughs> in the stack there for quite some time. But uh, excellent <coughs> work, mate. Um, that's okay, guys. I must admit, I did forget about it for a while. Uh, you're very kind. Now, Kathy, uh, where should we find you? You've been doing any writing lately where we can find you? Oh, same old place. Go to Kathy Mexted Writing and Photography on Facebook. And also at kathymexted.com.au, correct? Correct, the mundo. Yes, and are you still tweeting? I haven't seen you been. Have you been tweeting lately? Yes, I was tweeting on Friday night. Oh, there we go. At uh, Carscribe, K A S C R I B E on Twitter. So everybody get out there and follow Kathy. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, Grant, um, I guess uh, you'll be up. Now, are you going to be flying any more special shapes or are you going back to the more conventional balloon shape? Um, Mate, I am absolutely flat out until the end of August uh, between uh, going up to Sydney for the A350, going to Darwin for exercise pitch black, and also wrapping up a whole lot of uh, the documentation for CASA to produce a lot of documentation for them and uh, revise a few things for the AOC and also the uh, repair company we purchased recently. Uh, That's going to keep me pretty busy, plus everything's really soggy, so I don't think I'm going to get to fly again until September once hopefully the ground dries out a bit and I have a bit more time. And yeah, if I can take a special shape out and fly it, I'll do it, but otherwise it'll just be a conventional balloon but uh, the whole goal is to clock as many hours as I can once all the dust settles from everything. Yeah, I'll tell you what, well, speaking of special shapes, I'll be flying a, a shape that vaguely uh, resembles that of a uh, Texan. 
top class <laughs> out there at uh, Turidunum. Payday is coming in this week, and uh, I guess I'll be uh, buying an RAL's membership. And uh, you know, hopefully, um, you know, the path to currency will finally, finally continue, and uh, we'll get there, which would be excellent. Most excellent, mate. I'm very happy to hear that you're back in the air. That's a wonderful thing. Yes, absolutely. And I'm sure my bank manager is horrified, but we won't tell him anything <laughs> about it. <laughs> That's the one. Never tell the bank manager. And uh, good luck convincing the misses. <laughs> Well, that's everything we have for you on this episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. Thanks very much for listening. As always, we hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back very soon uh, with another episode of PCDU. We'll, we'll try not to make it, you know, so many months in between episodes, but uh, we certainly hope you enjoyed this show. Until next time, take care, folks, and fly safe. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer, Grant McCarran, Kathy Mexted, and Micah Lee. Full show notes for this and all our episodes are at playingcrazydownunder.com. You can find us on Twitter as PCDU and on Facebook, Google+, YouTube and Vimeo. Feedback? Suggestions? Advertising inquiries? Email them through to contact at plaincrazydownunder.com or mail to Post Office Box 70, Cranbourne, Victoria, 3977, Australia. Plain Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production. Voiceover work provided by the infrequent flyer, the work experience kid we found off the street. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. They are very happy. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> we can Double tell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get a tissue. Hang on. No, no Qantas. Talk about me while I'm gone. Such Qantas. Now. No, Such it's, Qantas. Better about, it's, it's better to talk about you while you're there because then we can hear the reaction. We'll never know when she's back, though. That's the trouble. I know. Ooh, yeah. She sneaks in. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> I, thought was, I thought that was Steve for a second. Don't panic. Nobody panic. <laughs> Terrain, pull up. Terrain, pull up. <laughs> traffic, traffic. No, I'm talking to Grant and Steve on Skype. We're what? So sorry. Yes, yes, I know. Yes, those guys. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'd be sorry too. Um. Yeah. You want the shout out for the uh, museum? Or? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I'll museum. Give it to okay. That's set up. Make sure that's set on. Make sure my hair is perfect. Zing. Well, so much for that. <clears throat> well, good day, oh, folks. Good. Hey. <clears throat> sorry, I was just sorry. I didn't realize you're about to start. I was just going to say, well, two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> uh, dear Grant. All right. <laughs> a turbo prop before. Uh, Kathy, I do envy you. I've always wanted to fly a uh, Piper Cub. Where'd you go? Hey, there. Calling Kathy. Oh, sorry. Yep. Um, I'll I don't that know again how to answer that. I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because anytime uh, – actually, I said this to Kathy's husband once. He said, I've always wanted to drive a train. I said, you're right, I've always wanted to fly a Boeing 767. He said, I'll teach
There you go. Now, Mike, um, we can hear lots of aircraft in the background. Um, we should point out that you're talking to us from Sydney and uh, you must be near a flight path. Run, Mark, they've gone without you. <laughs> that's, uh, that's correct. I'm, uh, I'm at the front of my parents. Your love of classic aircraft uh, really showed through. You're actually in your element there. Absolutely. <laughs> can I say freaking? Sure. Uh, I think we can let I'll, you off with that one. I'll, 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 I'll rephrase that one. Um, absolutely. Uh, it... Three, two, one. I'm now standing on the taxiway in front of a. Sorry. What's your aircraft in Austin? Mark III Austin. Mark III Austin. What year? Three, two, one. I'm now standing on the taxiway in front of a Mark III Oster 1942 built. 1942. Sorry. <laughs> I'm here in Point Cook, Victoria. I'll say that again. I'm here at the Centenary of Military Aviation. Don't, say, don't take it off. Don't take it off. I want to. I want to see it now. Too late. Oh, oh, sh- talk to you, grumpy mate. <laughs> it's not grumpy. I'm just worried. <laughs> I know. Kathy, you, you can I'll see send it. Email. McCarran. Mick said's usually the one with the crap bandwidth, and here she is uploading photos. I mean, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> and I Grant's think there's a blooper right there. <laughs> <laughs> just be careful which photos you're uploading there, Kathy. We could be here all day. <laughs> we could be. We're only just getting started. I've got nowhere to go, mate. My husband's <laughs> taking the kids out and I'm here. What? Here. So you're, the best thing you could do is get on the Skype and chat? I had no choice. <laughs> <laughs> no, but to stick you're around, I thought, I thought if you've got the house to yourself, it'd be like, right, that's it. Done. I'm out of here. I'm off to have yeah, some fun. That's right. Yes, and she is having fun. She's talking with us. I'm thrilled, silly. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> let's not go there. Right. Now, does anyone? Uh, finally, yay, next episode we can finally say congrats, Shane. Well done, dude. <laughs> Double and the birds were tweeting. It's not crickets, it's, tr- it's birds. <laughs> Sorry, I was having a conversation with my daughter. What did you say? Oh, <laughs> oh, God. Cool. Okay, no worries. I'll just put a marker in there so I can find it. Let's see. Marker. I'll use, use this opportunity to cough. <laughs> <coughs> Oh, how are those ears? <laughs> well, it's not easy being me. <laughs> it's not easy being me. Me, 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 only me, always me, always me, forever. <laughs> that, folks, is the Grant motto. <laughs> hey. No, the McCarran family motto is, it was a good idea at the time, edit bonnet in temporis. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know where I can get that sound effect from? Because I really want to play it at it various Sadtrombone.com. Okay. I'm nothing if not reasonable. Yeah, totally. Or not reasonable, one or the other. No, no, Doc, no, you're nothing if not reasonable. Doc <laughs> Doc oh, Don't go there. Lopping one zero off for you, Crichton Brown. Uh, museum venue in Port Adelaide. So just on the outskirts of a – well, I shouldn't say outskirts. That's, just created a blooper right there. I'll yeah. say that. <laughs> um, they're at their museum in – well, there you go. So, and, and what have you got, Micah? Have you got an iPad or an iPhone? I only just have an iPhone. For a, for a young Asian bloke, I'm actually not really that technologically <laughs> advanced. Well, uh, <laughs> a young well, Asian bloke. 
That's that's okay, What's Mikey. The Podcast, yes, it? let us not speak of anything railway, shall we? <laughs> Too much like de- like day job for Steve. So uh, moving on, I believe we've got one last. Uh, oh no! Guys, I got to wrap up. I got to go. Okay. See you, Grant. Thanks for uh, coming. Let's just do this last last thing.